0: This list comes from Steve Bennett. I just did his podcast, The Sportscasters. At number five, the first Bad Company record. I mentioned that earlier in my sort of honorable mentions. Great call there. At number four, Allison Chain's Facelift, another one for AIC. At number three, Tool Undertow. At number two, Appetite. And at number one, first one to have this record. Pearl Jam 10. Steve is a huge Pearl Jam fan, needless to say, I know that. Interesting list. So we're starting to see Tool pop up a couple times, and Alice in Chains pop up. Hard to argue with Pearl Jam 10. I was never that big of a Pearl Jam fan personally, although I certainly like the band, to put it in my top five but it's hard to argue with that record and the impact that it had and also really hard to argue with the first Bad Company record if you look at the track listing on that record man there's some great 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 songs a timeless record another band criminal not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Steve thank you for your list interesting variety there as well (laughs)
1: Alright, alright, what is up? It is Steve Bennett, Season 10, Episode 7 of the Sportscasters. Hope this podcast reaches you somewhere where you are safe and healthy as the quarantine grinds on and on. It was nice uh, the last few days to have the draft and to um, sort of get some new sports news, not old games or... Uh, Things like that. I'll get to the draft in a second. I do have a few thoughts. But first, on the podcast today, uh, Keith Law is going to join us first. He is the author of a new book uh, that has been part of the book club called The Inside Game. uh, Bad calls, strange moves, and what baseball behavior teaches us about ourselves. I recorded the interview with uh, Keith about a week ago now. And I'm going to air that one first. So after this. And I do have a few things I want to go over. We'll take a break and Keith Law will kick us off. It's about a half hour interview. Uh, then we have a book club update and it's a fairly big one. Um, I haven't had a show in the last couple of weeks and I'll explain why in a second. But uh, one thing I did do while I was taking a little bit of a break was sort of get things set up for the book club for the next six weeks or eight weeks or so. And I'll detail everything about that in the book club. Uh, then we have an interview with Adam Lazarus. Adam is a guy with a long history on the sportscasters. He first appeared uh, pretty much in the infancy of the book club, uh, maybe around 2012, where he was promoting a book called Best of Rivals, a book he wrote about Joe Montana and Steve Young. And I kind of made friends uh, with Adam and. Uh, he actually co-hosted the podcast a time or two back when Don was on the podcast as well. And Don would miss now and again. And when he, that happened, I would usually fill that spot with someone else. Anthony, uh, my brother, has co-hosted a few times. And Adam co-hosted as well, a few other people. But so he did that. And then he wrote a book called Hail of the Redskins. And he was on to promote that. Before hell to the Redskins, and even before Best of Rivals, he had written a book called Super Bowl Monday, uh, which is about Super Bowl twenty-five. Backing up a little bit, if you remember, about a year ago, uh, we did a podcast interview with a guy named John Delapina, uh, where we broke down the nineteen ninety-four New York Rangers that they were doing like it was the twenty-fifth anniversary in two thousand nineteen of the ninety-four Rangers, and I wanted to do something for it. So I tracked down John who had covered the Devils and then the Cup itself for the Daily News in New York. And we just kind of broke it down, kind of went game by game, really flushed out the story. And I've been wanting to do more of those and and I thought of this idea with Adam. I thought he'd be the perfect perfect person to do it with. So we're gonna break down Super Bowl twenty five. Uh, which was the Bills versus Giants that ended, of course, with Scott Norwood missing the field goal. And I think it turned out really good. We did it yesterday. It's about an hour and 15 minutes. It's going to be the second interview today. And we just break down all aspects of the game. We break down the Giants and the Bills, their seasons. We kind of track the Giants from winning the Super Bowl in 1986 uh, up to that game. We track the Bills kind of from the Kelly era to that game. Uh, We talk about Whitney Houston and the National Anthem. We talk about the halftime show. We talk about the announcers. And, of course, we talk about the game and the field goal and the legacy of the game. And it turned out really cool, I think. Uh, I'm curious what you think about these podcasts. Do you guys like this uh, style of interview where we just kind of pick something out and focus on it? Uh, We'll see what the feedback is and, and if we do more in the future. Uh, I know I'd love to do something maybe with data about like the 96 Avalanche uh, or this works really well um, with wrestling. Uh, maybe we do a wrestling one with uh, get Shoemaker on and flush out WrestleMania 3 or I'm just spitballing but there's a lot of ways this could go and it could be something fun to do especially if the time without sports uh, drags on longer. It might be a way to fill in the gaps. Now, I had done four podcasts in a row, four pretty good ones. We had Scotty Bowman. We had, you know, uh, SL Price returned. We had John Feinstein. And I took a little bit of break. And the reason was I'm just getting, I was just getting frustrated in terms of booking because sometimes people, and it's people that I care about and people who seem to care about me and like this podcast, they make you just beat it out of them sometimes to book them and I was just getting really frustrated, and I said, you know, I need a break. I think everyone was is still sort of trying to figure out their life and what it's like in quarantine. But uh, we're back today, and um, uh, this podcast will go up, and it won't be long until the next one. So we're going to get back into the rhythm here, hopefully some great guests coming up. Uh, I have also not only been setting up the book club, but also hopefully – setting us up for some great guests in the future. A couple more things before we get to Keith Law. First, the draft. I want to say I thought the NFL did a fantastic job in ESPN and the NFL Network of pulling off a really complicated uh, technical marvel sort of the draft. I thought they did a really good job with only a few exceptions. Uh, Goodell pulled it off. ESPN pulled it off. It turned out great. and uh, It was a boring draft, unfortunately. There wasn't a lot of trades. It was really sort of chalky wasn't a lot of you know picks especially in the front end of the first round that surprised anyone you know it's probably a good year for the mock drafters um, because a lot of a lot of what we thought could be ended up being Um, as for the Saints I was very happy with how their draft went Uh, I will admit when they made their first pick I wanted it to be Patrick Queen. I thought they needed the linebacker really badly, and he was available. But they went with a center-slash-guard who everyone says is super smart. And Sean Payton said with a limited off-season program this year, uh, people with football, high football intelligence were going to be very important. And listen, they've had a fantastic track record with drafting offensive linemen in the first round. Uh, and protecting Drew Brees is of the mo- utmost importance. And then, of course, they were able to get the uh, the linebacker that they tried very hard to get in the second round in the middle of the third round anyway. So they still addressed linebacker, added a tight end. Again, whoever one says is really intelligent. Some people had as their top tight end. And then they traded back in to the seventh round uh, to get a quarterback I'm always interested in sixth, seventh round quarterbacks, potential projects. I always think that's smart. Uh, they did a great job with the extra time they had on day three in securing what seems like a good free age, undrafted free agent class, which has also been a strength of Peyton and Loomis. You know, think of guys like Pierre Thomas. Uh, of course, they've done a really good job. Uh, 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 the kick returner last year, of course, identifying these guys and and making them a part of the team. So we'll see how they did with that as the offseason and hopefully the season uh, plays out. So I was really happy with how the draft went uh, for the Saints, and uh, I think probably Bills fans are pretty happy with how their draft went. It seemed like, in general, fan bases across the league were really happy with how their teams did, unless you're the Packers. seems like the Packers had the draft, I fear, where instead of adding to a made team, it seemed like they were projecting out to the future more uh, in the first round, drafting Jordan Love, who's not going to help them on the field next year. And when you go 13-3 and three and you get a bye and you get that close to the Super Bowl, I'm sure Aaron Rodgers and Packers fans in general would have rather have seen them add someone who could make an impact on the field in an NFC that feels like it just got so much better over the offseason. Feels like so much talent came from the AFC to the NFC. And maybe that's just my perception, being a fan of a contender in the NFC. But it was like every time I turn on the TV or refresh Twitter, someone's going to Tampa Bay or going to the NFC West, which is just going to be a dogfight. Um, I thought, speaking of the NFC West, I thought the Cardinals did really well. thought the Cowboys did really well. Uh, So we will see. But it was great to have the draft. Also, I did watch the first two parts of The Last Dance. Uh, The documentary about the Bulls and Jordan. I enjoyed the first two parts. Uh, It was worth watching. I'm going to keep watching it. Uh, I I don't have maybe the enthusiasm that some people do for it. Uh, I think we we needed that fresh sports content so badly that it's maybe getting a little bit of a pass. And it's good, don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't know if it's great per se, but I'm enjoying it so far, so I'll continue to do that. Uh, one last thing today, I'm going to finally break down Gigaton. I'll go track by track on that, let you know what I think of the new Pearl Jam record. Uh, but with all that said, I think we got a lot to do, so let's get to it. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back. For the first time ever, Keith Law. Our first guest today is a Harvard graduate. Uh, He worked for four years as a special assistant for the Toronto Blue Jays before starting a 14-year career at ESPN. And now he writes full-time for The Athletic. He's the author of two books, including a new one called The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Keith Law. Hey, Keith, how are you doing today? Um good thanks considering circumstances. How about you? I'm doing pretty good hanging in there. Where are you in the world? Wilmington,
2: Delaware. I've lived here since
1: 2013. Uh, how are things in Delaware? Uh,
2: actually not too bad. We could be a lot worse. We're we're very lucky our governor acted early and pretty decisively uh to shut things down and even try to discourage people from coming in out of state. So our situation could be a lot worse. We're still at the mercy of our neighbors, but so far it's been uh, it, it's been okay here. We're we're pretty lucky.
1: Yeah, I think I remember reading pretty early about Delaware kind of asking for people. Not, is there's a lot of vacation houses, maybe on the beach or the yep. water there. Yeah, yeah, yep, th- down south. Yep, yeah, I thought that was Delaware. Delaware. Twenty houses.
2: Yeah, they think, had, and of- they had to they had to close the beaches. I mean, people were still not listening. But he moved Governor Carney here. Moved quickly and shut things down, whereas in Florida, you still saw people for right. weeks going to beaches, right. and
1: Governor DeSantis there just decided right. not to do anything about it. Right, well, he kind of left it to the counties, like, do you, did you see that one picture in, there, where the one county had closed the beach, and the neighboring county hadn't, and someone took a picture over top where you could see the county <laughs> line, because the beach was empty, <laughs> and then on the other right. side, it was shoulder to shoulder. And it's like, wow, right. that's gotta be, that's insane, you know, but yeah,
2: yeah, it is. It is not smart. It is not smart. This is this is pretty serious. Not like I said, I am grateful. I am not. Uh, it's not like I was a, had any real strong
1: opinion on our governor here beforehand. But he has done. I think he's done the best he could in this situation. Sure. Um, we are recording about a week before the book comes out, and I, I'm, I think I am going to run it when the book comes out. So just so everyone mm-hmm. knows, we're talking a little bit ahead of time. And with this, things change so fast. I, I wanted to say that, uh, but. In your opinion, what I mean, what is it like to release a book in this time, right? Because I mean, your, your last book, Smart Baseball, you, you released it in "quote unquote" regular times, if you know if that's a thing. And now, yeah, right. yeah. have you thought about that at all?
2: Uh, I have, but I don't have a good answer because we just don't know, right? One, because there's no precedent, and sure. two, because I I kind of won't know until the book's out. I mean, people are still pre-ordering it. People are still saying they're excited to get it. A lot of people are indicating to me they're home, so they have time to read. I have found my own time to read has been a little bit compressed, actually, because uh, because of sort of homeschooling requirements. My daughter is here. My partner's two daughters also have some homeschool. They're here. Actually, the, the one who's in first grade probably has the most work out of all three, even though she's not the oldest. <laughs> I thought my daughter would have the most. So we're busier and I don't have the, you know, typically I, because I work from home and because I would travel I would get a ton of reading time between those two things. Like I could sit down 11 in the morning, take a break, sit on the couch and read, or I'd be on a plane and would knock out sure. 200 pages in a book. So for me it's been different, but a lot of people are telling me they have more time to read. That's great. I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, you know, I'm hoping that one, I'm hoping, obviously I'm hoping to drive sales in my own book. But also, I'm trying to use this as an opportunity to support independent bookstores, and I'm telling people to go to bookshop.org if you want to mail order the book, because that's a new site. It's an alternative okay. to the big box stores that directly supports independent bookstores. They really need our help, obviously. They've had to close. Right. There's very little revenue coming in, but most of these bookstores I know of, they're still uh, fulfilling uh, mail order. So if you go to bookshop.org, if you don't have a specific store you want to order from, just go to bookshop.org, and they will source it from an independent bookstore, and they give a pretty significant portion of their proceeds to support independent bookstores. So just, like I said, they really need our help in this, in this uh, shutdown.
1: Wow, that's interesting information for sure. Uh, you know, when I when this sort of was just beginning, I was talking to John Feinstein on the podcast who was promoting a book that came out called The Backroads to March. And it was mm-hmm. an interesting timing for him because in a way his book, to a lot of people... It, I sort of discovered through promoting it. It became a way to experience the NCAA tournament without the NCAA tournament. Ah, yes, yeah, yeah. And I wonder if you thought at all if the inside game could be a similar thing for baseball fans who are starving for baseball—a way to experience baseball without games.
2: I hope so, and kind of like we did a package at the Athletic earlier uh, in—I think it ran the first week of April where a bunch of us talked about our favorite baseball video games from our childhood. I personally wrote a fairly long piece on Earl Weaver baseball, which was a big thing when I was in high school in the late eighties, mm-hmm. um, talked to one of the developers of the game and it was a bit of nostalgia, right? right. I actually had somebody even tell me yesterday, uh, yesterday I recorded another interview and he just said, I just want to tell you, I loved that game. You know, if you're the right <laughs> age and you had a computer in the house, which not everyone did at the time, my dad was an electrical engineer, so there were always computers now, you know, then That sort of hit that spot for you. And that's, I think what you're describing, I hope people will read this book and it'll just, this book will probably make you miss baseball more, but at least I will bring people back to various points in baseball history or or get some of those arguments going that you'll kind of get that, that little Jones a little bit for at least baseball talk. You know, I do. I talk about drafts. They talk about in-game tactics. They talk about trades and signings. All of these things. It'll hopefully bring people back to certain times and places where everyone remembers when Grady Little didn't take Pedro Martinez out of that playoff game in two thousand three. Everyone yeah. remembers. I can tell you where I was when I heard that the Angels had signed Albert Pujols to it, that crazy ten-year contract extension. I, I I hope I evoke some of those things, get you back to that time and place, and say, okay, now. Think about it differently. Here I'm giving you a different framework or a little more information. Let's revisit the decision and look at it from a different angle or a different lens.
1: Yeah, the book is very much about decisions, and we'll get into that in a minute. Before we get too far away from it, though, I want to say, Tony Larusa, baseball for Sega Genesis. Oh, man, did I love ah, it. Yeah. Um, yep. You mentioned nostalgia. Have you got in at all to watching the old games? Like last night at on ESPN, they had the um, – Game one of the '88 World Series, and yep. um, oh man, did oh, I did love watching in that. that game! <laughs> well, t- Jose Cansego hit a grand slam.
2: Um, oh, there you go. Yeah, I'm surprised he wasn't tweeting about it. Well, he probably was. Actually. Probably,
1: yeah. And then
2: yeah. Uh, I, um, I, I haven't, but it has nothing to do with baseball. Sure, I, this is me being a little weird. I also almost never. I don't really rewatch movies or very, very rarely rewatch movies, television. I almost never reread books. Even the novel that I always, uh, I've done rankings of my all time favorite novels. The number one has always been the same. It's called The Master and Margarita. I've read it twice. I read it once in college and then reread it about 25 years later. I remember them too well. Like when it's notable, it's hard for me to watch a baseball game, not because I know who wins, but because I remember too many of the events from a notable game
3: sure.
0: the same
2: way I am for like movies and stuff, which is, but that's totally just a me thing. It's not that I wouldn't. And trust you, I actually told my, was talking to my daughter last night. She's at her mom's house last night. He said, Hey, Raiders of the Lost Ark is on Netflix. You should watch that movie because she hasn't seen it. And I was thinking, you know, part of me would love the experience of watching it with her. But also, you know how many of the scenes I remember of that movie? I haven't, probably haven't actually sat down to watch that movie in 15 or 20 years, but I still remember all of them. So it's always a little bit like, yeah, I'll kind of half watch, but I'll probably be like writing a blog post in the background or something because I'm just weird like that. And I can remember too many things. I, what I have enjoyed, though, is watching people tweet about watching these old baseball games okay. and watching their reactions to it. That, to me, is fun. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I, I can be a little strange like that, but I, that is something I'm enjoying because as you're off, the, you know, you mentioned that that playoff game from 1988. I didn't know any of these people back then. I didn't have the internet in 1988, right. so to watch, you know, current friends and acquaintances reacting to those games now is to me particularly interesting because I I can tell you where I was when that series happened, but of course my circle of friends and acquaintances was very different.
1: I'm almost. Uh totally with you when it comes to sports in the sense that i almost never rewatch a sport maybe a clip but never sit down to watch a game because it maybe like you i remember it too much or i get mm-hmm. too antsy for what's gonna happen you know like if it's a hockey game i kind of just want to see the goals or, or i'll be like oh there's not gonna be another goal for 17 minutes why sit here you know but right, right. <laughs> but desperate times right desperate times i guess yeah that's true yeah this is true <laughs> um and, uh, you know, I was watching that ninth inning last night, and I guess one thing I hadn't thought about since maybe since I was eight years old when I watched it the first time and never probably seen that home run a hundred times since, but never the whole inning, mm-hmm. Eckersley just mowed down the first two people. Yeah. yeah just, <laughs> no one
4: talks about that, right? Yeah.
1: A first pitch pop out and then a strikeout, and then he just starts nibbling all of a sudden on – Mike Davis, maybe I think it was, or someone who had used to play for the it just starts nibbling and, and it gets a walk and it's just like, Wow, I can't believe he nibbled on that guy like that. I can't believe for the first two outs he didn't just a guy was like two for nineteen in his last you know, just like a really strange uh, um, part of the game there that I would have never uh, thought of. But it's like there's the chapter
2: in the book where I talk about the eighty six World Series and the decision by Red Sox manager john mcnamara to not replace bill buckner at first base with dave stapleton even though dave stapleton was essentially on the roster just for, for that offensive yep. replacement no one talks about all the things that happened leading up to buckner's misplay How giraldi came in and was not good and how many things had to happen to set that up but of course we only remember the last place a bit of recency bias within a story about status quo bias uh you know, sort of multiple things coming into play. But what we remember is the last thing. It's also much more available, right? What's the highlight you remember remembered seeing for, uh, God, what is that, 34 years now? It's the ball going through Buckner's legs. You right. don't remember and the call. everything that came before that. And the call. Yeah, the ball right. gets past right. Buckner, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. But you don't remember everything that came before that. And it was a lot more you know, Buckner is the wrong goat for multiple reasons. One, he just shouldn't have been on the field. But two, how much had to go wrong before that ball was ever hit to him right. for that play to even occur in the first place? The Red Sox should have won that game well before that point. And so you know, I've really felt bad for Buckner for lots of different reasons. Now, I use him as a story to talk about a managerial blunder. But if you really look at that sequence of events, you realize – just like you were talking about, no one talks about what Eckersley did in that inning before the home run. No one, few people talk about what happened in the inning before Buckner failed to field the ground ball, and and as a result, you know, Buckner gets unfairly blamed kind of on multiple levels for a game that, you know, again, it was it's not on him. He probably was never going to make that play in the first place. The biggest thing is that play shouldn't have happened in the first place.
1: Right. It's sort of like. Um... Um, Bartman, too, right, in Chicago. Like, everything that happens after that play, you know, sort of gets hung on him. The error at shortstop. um, Right. You know, all that.
2: Pryor should have been out of the game before that point, right? That never should have happened. The error at shortstop is the big one. That's the one that no one ever talks about. I think it was
1: Alex so I may have that. Wrong. I think that's right. I want to say, Alex isn't Gonzalez that right? Too. Yeah,
2: it was. A, I, but my memory of that—it's funny because again, I can tell you, I remember being on the phone with my boss at the time. We were like, "What the heck is going on? Yeah, uh, you know what? What is Dustin Baker doing?" And then, but it was a sure fielding. Whoever the shortstop was, was yeah, I, I
3: think you're right about make that. that play. Yeah, right.
2: Yeah, that—that that was the thing. Is that that's actually the much more notable thing? Yeah, but the Bartman thing. I mean, it shouldn't even be the Bartman thing, right? It right. was. It just that never should have happened but somehow the media at the time particularly latched onto him as the story and ruined a guy's life for absolutely no good reason at all.
1: And that's what's so fun about, well at least for me reading the book was just kind of going over these moments, you know, the 86 World Series uh, which is a big, you know, like you said, a chapter in the book and when I was reading that, such a wild World Series in the sense that so much time was, you know, that they, they had the rain delay, you know, mm-hmm. um, throwing things off and because of the rain delay, you know maybe Clemens is pitching a game where he maybe Clemens doesn't pitch, and right, you know just it was really interesting because again the eighty six World Series maybe like Kirk Gibson's home run and other things in the book, you think so much about the moment and know so much about the moment and lose track of what happened leading up to the moment or after the moment, and right. um yeah. That, Yeah, that was a really fun part of the book. Were there a few that got uh, left on the cutting room floor? I was wondering that. Were there a few stories? It
2: It was a little different than that. It was more that I got to a certain point and said, I just have to stop. So I could have, like I had assembled, the list of cognitive biases and illusions is actually, God, there are probably 40, 50, 60 that are clearly identified in the academic literature. And you know where I could have, one, I could have just stretched and tried to tie more biases to more baseball stories. I said, you know what, this is a level, the book is long enough, I've reached a level where I'm comfortable with all of the, you know, tying this bias to this example and felt like, all right, this is this is good. I'm not overdoing it. I'm not stretching things to just try to make a point here. So I didn't write anything that wasn't included. It was more that. I'd outlined other stuff. And so well, maybe I can talk about this bias or I can talk about that bias. Instead, just got to a certain point, said, you know what, we're good here. I feel like I'm on solid ground. That was my concern here because my background in economics is um, is fairly limited. I have an economics degree as an undergrad uh, and an MBA. but That's a long time ago, and I never actually worked as an economist. So I wanted to make sure when I did talk about those things, I was sort of – I keep using the phrase, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here, right? The other people – did all this research, I'm trying to translate it for the lay audience as opposed to, you know, the, their work, which sort of expects that you might have an economics background. And so I wanted to be very cautious to, you know, almost be res- just be more respectful of what they did and say, no, 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 this is, this is where I feel like the, the connection between these two things is very solid. And I didn't want to start wading into territory where I wasn't maybe as comfortable making those connections.
1: One thing I did when I was uh, getting ready for this phone call, leading up for the last week or so, I was like, I'm going to go on The Athletic and see what Keith's been writing about the last month, two months, you know? And something you've been spending mm-hmm. a lot of time is prospects, the draft, what's going to happen with the draft. Just a lot of different things like that, Team breaking down teams and prospects. And then, of course, in the book, you have a, a really... One of my favorite chapters was, I think, Chapter 5, about uh, mm-hmm. Clayton Kershaw being an exception and drafting high school pitchers and why that can be uh, such a dangerous thing in the draft. And the baseball draft is so interesting because it's a million rounds. You know, people get drafted sometimes for the second time, which is, I'm pretty sure unique to baseball. Um, You know, it's not, it's not unusual for someone to get say drafted in high school, like the 25th round, then go to college after not signing and maybe be a first rounder. Then Um, talk a little bit about the, uh, because I was just really interested in this, the, um, The chapter on the draft and how maybe for you I noticed how much and and maybe this is something you can clarify are you doing so much on prospects in the draft because we have the downtime or is that something you usually focus on and if so did that make writing that chapter and analyzing that more interesting for you is that maybe one of your more uh, favorite chapters to write
2: I enjoyed that chapter a lot because I just like the draft sure um you know, unfortunately, with no season this spring, I wrote two pieces on the draft. One on what might happen because we have the shutdown, and then a second piece where I, yeah, that was already kind of in the works, just ranking the top thirty prospects for the draft. Eventually, I'll I'll rank more once we have a draft date and more of a schedule. Um, the The chapter the draft comes up a couple times in the book. Uh, once on the uh, survivor bias around high school pitchers, and just uh, and it comes up a couple of times in other chapters. Like on do we overweight first rounders after they're picked? Do we always does the first round tag stick to players too right. long? Yep. Just because, because the draft is so central to baseball, it is far and away the most efficient way to add talent to your system. Particularly if you're a low payroll team, this is this is it. This is the way you build your system is by drafting and developing well. And yet, it, and also it's it's so structured that every team has draft picks and we have all this data available on these. We can study that so much easier to study that than just to study trades or study signings in some sort of systematic way. So it's sort of perfectly set up for folks like me who just love to dump things into databases and start playing with the information. And the, the high school pitching one is one that's of a particular interest to me because I struggle with it specifically because I go out and scout players and I see those high school pitchers. And trust me, I'm with the other scouts salivating over the kid with the with the big fastball and the good delivery and the athletic body and he's projectable and all that. But you know what? The truth is the base rate says these guys don't work out as much. You're better off taking a college pitcher than a high school pitcher, pitcher even if you think the college pitcher is slightly worse, or has slightly less ceiling. The data bear that out. And yet when you go to the ballpark, you go to that high school field, you see that high school pitcher, boy, is it easy to get seduced by what you see on the mound. And so to me, that's not only is that was that an interesting thing to write, when we get back to playing baseball and I can actually start ranking players again, you're going to see that in my rankings. High school pitchers are going to be ranked less aggressively in my rankings, particularly for the first round, because the truth is they just don't work out as often.
1: Right. I think in the book, and I'm looking at it now, 85 to 2012, uh, high school pitchers are the war over 10 it's 10 out of 47 uh for Mm -hmm. 21 percent, and college pitchers is much higher at 31 percent um so yeah yeah so and that's I, i i mentioned that only to kind of show what the book is about it's about us kind of throwing out the me throwing to you what about high school versus college and you saying well this is why and then showing this data like you said and sort of explaining it in easier terms to digest am i right about that
2: Yes, that's yeah. the idea. Yeah. Um, you know, Everything in this book is about taking academic concepts from academic research and trying to translate it so that anybody can read and understand it. You do not need an economics background or psychology background to understand anything I'm telling you in the book, even though those are the disciplines where these ideas originated.
1: Let's hit another one real quick, and you mentioned it earlier, and I had it highlighted because Game 7 of the 2003 ALCS is, to me, one of the best baseball games I ever got to watch. Um, you know, from first pitch to last, and it's such an interesting game because the Red Sox get ahead, um, and then Mussina kind of comes in as a reliever and kind of holds the door, holds holds the fort mm-hmm. a little bit. There's the two Giambi home runs, um, and then that 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 five outs away. I think it was I think it was Verducci wrote who, who wrote the famous article in SI five outs away. It was the Cubs and the Red Sox that year got five outs away from. Um, Making yep. the World Series and potentially ending their streaks. So let's talk a little bit about the decision not taking Pedro out and why it was such a, a great example uh, for you as something that could be in the book, and what you were trying to explain about Game Seven, Grady, two thousand and three.
0: What
2: I found most valuable about that one was that it was it happened in real time, uh, meaning that. We knew as it happened. And I had a specific anecdote talking to my boss at the time, uh, very specifically, about uh, about seeing, about understanding at the time that we w- we were watching a mistake happen, right? We were right. watching and Brady Little make an yeah. error. Yeah, I think so. I think everyone knew it. Certainly a lot of the reaction the next day, You you, you always run the risk of hindsight. Uh, telling you, oh, yeah, yeah, we knew he made a mistake, but I actually knew at the time and could uh, quote or cite somebody else the same way saying, hey, we both knew we were making this, we were watching this mistake happen in, in real time and talk about that as in the context of status quo bias, that it was just, it's always easier to say, well, I left, you know, I didn't make a change, right? It, seemed, it feels safer to humans to do nothing, to not make a change than it does to actually make a change. That's not, obviously that's not accurate, but it is one of the heuristics that our brains like to use to potentially, uh, you know, to, to try to sort through all of the information available to us. I think it was also probably true in that case that Grady Little was thinking it's Pedro Martinez.
3: That's yep, He guy. was the
2: best picture, yep. right? Mm-hmm. He's, he is the guy.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so, Did that, you know, versus bringing in a very good reliever, but who's not Pedro Martinez, obviously. So that's also, I'm sure that was also a factor going through his head. But in the process, he ignored salient information that Pedro Martinez, by that point, had thrown a lot of pitches. A lot of pitches for any pitcher, but particularly for Pedro, who by that point in his career, the Red Sox were already managing him kind of differently to try to keep him fresher. And second was that the immediate information right before that said "Mm, Pedro might be slipping, right? He's multiple times through the order. He hadn't been as effective so far that inning. It was, there was some at least subjective evidence that he might be tiring at that point. And that meant, yeah, that is Pedro Martinez, but it's not the Pedro Martinez from three innings ago. And that isn't important information that I think got overlooked as a result of the, again, what I think is status quo bias affecting Little's decision-making.
1: Yeah. It's one of those things too, where I'd love to be able to, have been, I don't know, I guess the term is like a fly on the wall and that huddle on the mound. You know what I mean? I think of some moments like that in sports. uh, I'm a big Saints fan, and Super Bowl 44, Tracy Porter intercepts Peyton Manning. um, Mm -hmm. And Peyton Manning then goes up to Reggie Wayne, and they have, like, a real brief conversation. On the, and I always wonder, like, what did Manning say to Reggie Wayne right there? Like, did he say, like, man, you got to cut that route tighter? Like, I always wonder, like, what they said though. <laughs> you know, and that's, like, another example of that where, man, I wonder what Pedro said to Grady to get it. Because he had to go out there thinking he was going to change him, right? And Pedro talked him out of it. He wasn't I, – I mean, I, I think. Don't you or – you, uh, I, I assume so. Granted, yeah. I'm not you know
2: yeah. I'm much less of a football fan, so I don't I don't. Well, know no, I mean
1: Grady Little. Went yeah, you assume yeah. that that's what happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's super interesting and a really fun part. I, I don't know about you, When I think of that game too. Um, I always I had a i had to watch it again, um, but I always remember Boone is rounding the bases after hitting the home run, and it caught the corner mm-hmm. of my eye that Mariano Rivera was laying on the mound. And I was like, is Mariano Rivera laying on the mound? Like, how did he get on the mound already? Um, <laughs> and I, every time I watch that highlight, I always, like, look, and I was like, yeah, he's still laying on the mound. I don't know how he got out there so That's pretty quick. funny. Yeah, yeah, but there he is laying on the mound. Um, the book is called The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. It's by Keith Law. Who's a senior baseball writer at The Athletic? And I mentioned that because The Athletic is offering um, free trials right now during this strange time in our world. So if you're not a member of The Athletic, now's a great time to jump in and to subscribe and get to read some of Keith's work on there. Like I said, he's been doing a lot of breakdowns in terms of prospects in the organization and a few pieces about the draft. And you can get in on that. And we mentioned the book comes out. Um, Jeez, what's the exact date? 24... April 21st. 21st. April 21st. Yep. And you can order it now, pre-orders. Um, you want to throw that website out again, Keith, that you like? the uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Booksh- bookshop.org. Great place to buy, obviously, buy my book, but really to buy any book. Yeah. It's fantastic. I really, like I said, I'm a big supporter of independent bookstores. This is a great way to do so, especially if you don't have a specific one you like or that you're trying to support. Go to bookshop.org. They have pretty much everything. I've already ordered through them, and I've been sending readers there for a couple of weeks now. The site's only two months old. It sort of popped up at the perfect time to try to keep some of these indie bookstores in business.
1: Yeah, bookshop.org. You can find information. Keith, do you have a Twitter?
2: At Keith Law, K-E-I-T-H-L-A-W.
1: Easy enough. You can find information there. And you can also, if you're an e-book person, um, you can already pre-order it for ebook on apple and on amazon for either kindle or iphone whatever you use for ebook we do have a lot of ebook uh, readers keith so i like to mention that uh very last thing i'll get you out of here on this um i'm sure you've been asked this a million times but what do you what do you think the 2020 baseball season is going to look like do you have a prediction at all about and i won't hold you to it i know it's uh you know but um what do you think i guess
2: I hope, um, I hope I'm wrong. I think I'm a realist though. We're okay. not going to see fans with games this year. Okay. Uh, if we see any games at all, if we see a third, third or a half of the season, I would be very happy with that outcome. I think that's probably a best case scenario baseball. They're, they're going to try, if they're going to try anything they can. Uh, but it, it, this is a public health question. It is not a sports or a business question. And ultimately, they're going to have to, and the, the union is going to have to agree in addition to the league, but they're going to have to find some kind of solution that doesn't put players or the public at greater risk of, of new outbreaks. Because this will, you know, we're it's going to taper off at some point. Uh, we're seeing that. I have cousins in Italy, one of whom is a doctor, so I've been watching the data from there very closely. It will taper, but that doesn't mean it's gone. And we cannot, baseball, sports in general, can't create a situation where we're going to have new outbreaks as a result of these games. I think it's just going to be difficult. So I want us to play. I really hope we play. I hope we get at least half a season and and some semblance of the minor leagues this year, but I'm also realistic and I understand that the public health has to come first.
1: You think we'll see double headers, seven inning double headers if they come back?
2: Uh, The union can, I can almost promise you the union would oppose anything like that because players, players absolutely hate them. Plus it's really not great for managing pitching. So unless there's a pretty dramatic change to how rosters are constructed, probably not. Like if we have to play a 60 game season, I understand it's abnormal, but these are abnormal times. Right. I'm, I'm open to anything if, as long as the public health authorities say, yep, we can do this safely and keep everybody free from infection and, and avoid creating new outbreaks."
1: Boy, if I had a lousy team or maybe a team I think could be lousy, I'd be pretty excited about a 60 game season. That feels like it levels right. you the playing field your way a little into bit. The yeah.
2: Yep, No, oh, you absolutely could It might be interesting as sort of a one-time yeah. experiment. Yeah. Hey, we're just rolling the dice Whatever happens, happens You know what? Someone still wins Okay, great, I'm yeah. fine with that Fair I'm not going to have these arguments with people And say, that team didn't deserve to win The World Series, who cares? Right. If we're playing and everyone's healthy, I'm happy
1: Alright, the inside game, bad calls, strange moves, and what baseball behavior Teaches us about ourselves by Keith Locke Keith, thanks for doing this
2: Yep, my pleasure <laughs>
1: Could have used a few pounds, tight pants, points, hollering down. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. I have to thank Keith Law for being on the podcast today. Don't forget about his book, The Inside Game Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior teaches us about ourselves, and that's it for the inside game on the book club. And also, we had John Feinstein's book. We're done with that. We got two new ones that I'm going to talk about now. The first is a book called The Eighth Wonder of the World, The True Story of Andre the Giant. It's by Bertrand Hebert and Pat LaPrade. I know I said Pat's name wrong because I heard him say it. The other day, and it wasn't Le Prade, but it's something like that. L A P R A D E. Uh, Bertrand Ebert could be close. It's two French guys, and they wrote this book about Andre the Giant. They were also involved, well, I know Pat was involved, in the Andre the Giant documentary uh, that was on HBO. Uh, This book is from ECW Press, who does a lot of the wrestling books. They sent me two copies, so I have one to give away if you're interested. Email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. But I'm really excited. Andre the Giant's a fascinating guy. Uh, this looks like a fascinating book. I'm going to start reading it this week. And sometime in the next month or so, uh, Pat will be on uh, to talk about the book, to talk about Andre. And I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, Pat was also a part of the, the Dark Side of the Ring, uh, the Vice series. They did one on Dino Bravo. And Pat was a part of that. I'd love to talk to him about that a little bit when he's on as well. But we'll run this book for a month or so like we usually do. Again, it's called The Eighth Wonder of the World, The True Story of Andre the Giant. I should mention this. If you try to buy it on Amazon because of COVID-19 or whatever is going on, it's not really available. But if you do want a hardcover copy of it, Barnes & Noble does have it available. Uh, I know a friend, John, uh, and I were talking, and he canceled his Amazon order and ended up ordering it on Barnes and & Noble and did get it. So uh, that's something to consider. And, of course, it's available in ebook formats. The second book, I'm excited about this one. It's written by a guy named uh, Zach Meisel, M-E-I-S-E-L. That could be wrong, too. Uh, I promise I'll figure that out. Meisel, Meisel. Not sure, I'll find out from Zach how he says his name, but the book is called Cleveland Rocked, The Personalities, Sluggers, and Magic of the 1995 Indians. I'm super excited about this one. The 95 Indians played in the World Series against the Braves. It was the strike-shortened season uh, that came after they canceled the World Series in 94. Uh, They finally got back to playing about, I think, a 140-game season, uh, which culminated in a really great six-game World Series between the Braves and the Indians, of course, Tom Glavin pitched the one-hitter in Game 6, and Dave Justice hit the home run uh, to win the Game one nothing. I'm really excited to talk about that Indians team, which is fascinating. Fascinating team full of stars like Albert Bell and Manny Ramirez, Jim Tomei, uh, Oral Hershiser, uh Carlos Baerga, Sandy Alomar Jr. Just a loaded team, and I'm really excited to learn more about them and to talk to Zach about this book. Uh, I reached out to the publisher, and this was another example of them not being able to send me a book because of COVID, but they sent me the PDF, so I'm going to read that one digitally. And they also are offering a book to a listener. I'm just going to have to send them the name and the address, and they'll ship the books to the listener as opposed to me shipping it. So, again, I have a copy of this book. Email me, thesportscasters, at gmail.com if you're interested. It's called Cleveland Rocked, The Personalities, Sluggers, and Magic of the 1995 Indians. So that's where we're at. Two new books, one about the Cleveland Indians and one about Andre the Giant. Really excited about both of them. Got books to give away, commitments from authors to be on. So I'm looking forward to promoting these books and interviewing the authors. All right. With that said, another author who's had two different books as part of the book club. Adam Lazarus is next. We are going to break down Super Bowl 25. He wrote a book called Super Bowl Monday about Super Bowl 25, which is why I reached out to him to do this with me. And it's a really fun interview. I hope you enjoy it. I'll be back on the other side for one last thing and my Gigaton review. Our next guest is a Sportscaster's Hall of Famer, the author of books like Best of Rivals, Hail to the Redskins, and of course Super Bowl Monday. It's great to have him back to break down Super Bowl 25. A warm sportscasters. Welcome to Adam Lazarus. What's up, Adam? How you doing today, buddy?
4: I'm alright. Doing doing okay considering all the crazy stuff going on out there.
1: Yes, it is a crazy world right now. How did the Steelers do
4: in the draft? Uh, I think they did okay. You know, they they had their draft pick in right. October when they traded for Minka Fitzpatrick. And that worked out. It did. I, and so yeah. they're you know, they they're they're happy with that. And then um I don't know. You know, they've got some holes to fill. It looked like they got a big wide receiver who should help out. And Ben's—they've they, been talking for years about how Ben needs a big wide receiver. So it looks like they got that and shored up some other holes they have. But uh, I wow. still think that that Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love thing was the craziest thing of the whole draft. So
1: it seems pretty unanimous that people think that the Packers have had the worst draft. The Packers had the draft that I was worried the Saints would have, where you're this sort of made team. And instead of trying to improve that team, you were like, "Oh, well, we're already good, so let's just build for future teams."
4: I that... I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. I, 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 that's that's... What it sounds like that they're planning for life without Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Jones, and is also a free agent after the right. next year, I think.
1: And they added and they a they running back
4: a on him, but who knows? Uh, yeah, it, those that was those that was an odd circumstance, but especially with with. Them taking trading up. It's not even that they drafted him; they traded up to get to get Love. They gave up their first and fourth round. They spent their first and fourth round picks on a quarterback who hopefully never takes the field this year.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, unless you have a catastrophic injury to your star. Yeah,
4: Yeah. and if they do, I doubt even I I wouldn't expect Love to go out there and take him to the playoffs. But who knows? You know, there's younger quarterbacks getting younger and younger and playing better and better. So maybe they Mm -hmm. know something that everybody else doesn't.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting. I was very, very pleased with what Peyton and Loomis and Jeff Ireland did this weekend. Um, You know, I was worried that they might get tempted by Jordan Love if he was available. And instead, they improved the offensive line with supposedly the smartest offensive lineman. And then they also added the linebacker that they were willing to trade up into the second round to get, but couldn't, couldn't find a partner and were able to move up in the third round, still get him. And then they added a tight end. All three of the guys they got – now, everyone says this, but they said all three of the guys they got were in their top 60 on the board.
4: Troutman, right? He's supposed to be a good tight end.
1: Yeah, from Dayton.
4: Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard a lot of
1: good things. They they really don't have a tight end, I guess. They have Cook, and then they have Josh Hill, who is no Uh, star. You know what I mean? He's a solid player, but no star. Um, and they love to use the seam routes um, with the tight ends. I mean, that's what Jimmy Graham made all his money on, running those seam routes. And um, Cook had was good for them, but he also had trouble staying on the field. So
4: yeah, was, uh, I didn't know they brought him back. Um, he's uh, I mean, his contract
1: they, they, has a couple of years left on it. Taysom
4: problem. can get less touches catching the ball if they have a good tight end.
1: So. Right, exactly. And right now they don't have a backup quarterback besides Taysom. So. Yeah. They have to rectify that because if they want to use him the way they have, you can't count on him to be the backup tight end. But either way, um, what we're going to do today, and I mentioned it a little bit in the open, um, Adam wrote a book called Super Bowl Monday. And about a year ago or maybe a little bit more at this time, I had a guy named John Dellapina on the podcast. And he works in the NHL front office now. Uh, but at the, in 1994, way back then, he was the um, a beat writer for the New York Daily News. He was covering the New Jersey Devils. And the New Jersey Devils made it to the conference finals uh, where they played the New York Rangers in one of the best seven-game series, at least in my lifetime. Two double overtime games, uh, including in Game 7, the Marc Messier guarantee. And then when the Devils were eliminated, the Rangers went on to the cup. He followed um, then the cup and kind of covered the Rangers as part of the Daily News coverage of that. And um, what we did is we just basically really did kind of a retrospective on that season. And we talked about uh, the, the Devil series and then the Cup series. And I've been wanting to do kind of more of those. And I've been wanting to have Adam on. Uh, it's been a couple, couple maybe a year or two since he's been on. Been kind of focusing on being a dad and things like that. But I wanted to get him back. And I talked him in to this idea of kind of doing what I did with John. Uh, and doing one on Super Bowl 25. So I know personally I uh, have read the the book Super Bowl Monday that Adam wrote. Uh, I watched the uh, Bills 30 for 30. I watched the two Bills, Bill and Bill, the two Bills 30 for 30. And I also watched the Giants America game special that they do on uh, the NFL Network for all the Super Bowl teams. So I watched that as well to kind of refresh my memory on the story. And then I figured Adam and I would just sort of flush it out so let's start with this, Adam. Why did you decide to write a book about this Super Bowl of all Super Bowls? What was it about this one that – if you can think back when, what was it about this story you want
4: that made you want to tell it? I think um, it was always that game that had a weird um, – the overhang of, of the Gulf War. And I think it's probably the Super Bowl that had the most famous non-football moment, I would say, with Whitney, Whitney? Houston's sure. anthem. That's sort of uh, you can't watch any Super Bowl retrospective of you know 50 year Super Bowl, 25 year Super Bowl, um, whatever the last, you know last 10 years of Super Bowl. Uh, there there's always there's always some showing of of Whitney Houston singing the national anthem, and um, I think growing up I, I, that's what I remembered about it. But then you know it's also one of the greatest games in Super Bowl history. I was thinking before we talked, I was thinking like. You know, is it still the greatest game in Super Bowl history? Maybe, maybe not. You know, there's been so many great games the last 10 or 15 years, and this was coming on the heels of a long period uh, of real kind of bad Super Bowls. True, um, yeah. Aside from the, the the whole 80s, the Super Bowls were bad for the most part, except for uh, the uh, the Dolphins and the Redskins and John Riggins' run and the Montana touchdown pass to John Taylor. Almost all those other Super Bowls are huge blowouts, and I think this coming, uh, I remember this was like, "Oh, we've we've got another good game." Which now it seems like every year now we have a great game, which is a great for the sport and great for the game. Um, but I think that was one of the reasons why I always wanted to write a book on this Super Bowl uh, because it was such a great game and it had these other non-sort of non-football moments, um, and also you know a lot of the players. There's iconic players like Lawrence Taylor and and Thurman Thomas and and the two Parcells and Belichick. Uh, There was just so many famous people in that game that it was sort of a – you couldn't pick a more – a Super Bowl that represented more of what the NFL and Super Bowls are all about with this one. So that's one of the reasons why I always wanted to do this one.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of meat on the bone and we'll kind of talk about all of it. The Super Bowl before this, Super Bowl twenty four, kind of is a great, it kind of amplifies your point. It's forty ers Broncos, right, and in the Superdome, and just the uh, blowout.
4: Um, Maybe the worst Super Bowl. I, I mean, horrible from from a perspective of uh, the game itself. I remember, you know, the next book I did after this was the one on Joe Montana and Steve Young, right? And I can't remember exactly who it was, but they we talking to Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh had was no longer the coach, but he was at the game in the owners' box. I think it was either Carmen Policy or um, Eddie DeBartolo or someone, and they were watching the game with Bill Walsh, who was their guest. And before the game was started, Bill Walsh said, "This is they're going to win by you know forty points," uh, and so, "And they were right. It was it was just huge blood." So uh, yeah, to, to come on the heels of that game, which was just not. You know, not competitive at all. To have a game like this was a real treat for the fans, I suppose. Well,
1: let's start with the 49ers, um, and I'll tell you why. Because so the interesting thing for me is I was in Buffalo, of course. I grew up here, and I was in Buffalo for this, And, and I'll tell you about Championship Weekend and what I remember about it. The first thing I remember is my mom and I went to a bar to watch the game. I don't remember what bar, but I remember we went her friends were somewhere, and, and her and I went to watch the game. And my dad was actually at, um, in Los Angeles at the, or in Anaheim at the, at the fest, uh convention. It's like a, um, a music festival. He was at that. Um, but I remember when we were walking in. She said to me, do you think that the Bills will win? And I remember saying, well, I think they're going to win the game. But it's just so hard for me to fathom that they could be in the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl just felt so big, and my world felt so small. It felt hard for me to believe that the Buffalo Bills, and I've never been a big Bills fan in my life, mostly because of the Sabres and then becoming a big Saints fan a few years before this in 87, but I felt like they would win. The Raiders didn't have Bo Jackson. It was in Buffalo, it Just, and it felt like what happened in 88, they lose the AFC Championship game to the Bengals, and then in 89, it's the bickering Bills and Ronnie Harmon dropping the the potential game-winning touchdown in the end zone in Cleveland, and then a few plays later, Kelly throws an interception, but I just felt like they couldn't win. And then when they did, the thing I remember most about watching the NFC game, which was after, was what a break it would be for them in my mind if the Giants could find a way to beat San Francisco. Because in my mind, as a very young football fan, I was just 9 or 10 years old, In my mind, the 49ers were unbeatable. The Giants, they could beat. 49ers, maybe not. Um, That game, let's start with the Giants and the 49ers a little bit. What's crazy about that game is the hit that Mm -hmm. um, is put on Joe Montana. um, And I want to tell you something interesting about that hit. So I'm a big fan of Howard Stern, but not 2020 Howard Stern. So I listen to old Stern all the time. Mm. And um, the linebacker who makes the hit, why well, can't I think of his name? Leonard Marshall. Leonard Marshall, thank you. Leonard Marshall who makes the hit. He was he had a contract dispute the before going into the season and he didn't start a lot of the earlier games in the season. And Howard Stern, I always, I listen to, uh, I listen to old shows, and I was listening to some stuff, and Howard Stern was relentlessly busting his balls about not starting the games and everything, and then of course eventually he ends up have, with the huge hit coming from behind. I can picture it in my head, and um, you know, basically ending Montana's career as a Forty Nine er at least um, to a large degree, uh, and then the Giants uh, win that game. What do you remember about Giants and Forty ers Maybe the Giants run in the NFC playoffs. If there's anything else that comes to mind, or just kind of the Giants and their lead up, of course without Phil Simms uh, who was injured, um, and how their quarter, their sort of their lead up to being in the Super Bowl.
4: I think that's it. It's it's doing it with Jeff Hostetler. Uh, Simms had Phil Simms had been their quarterback in '86 when they won the Super Bowl. Had Arguably the greatest single Super Bowl performance ever going – Ball
1: end. barely hit the ground, uh, right?
4: Um, yeah, nobody – I don't think anybody's going to break that record for completion percentage in a Super Bowl. Right. Uh, and Breeze was close. It, he gets uh, – he was. Breeze, I, I think,
1: only had like. four or five, five or six oh. in completion. He, he had a great – Breeze didn't – I mean Breeze is very accurate anyway. But yeah, go ahead. Besides the point. Uh, an amazing think, game by Sims in that game. Yeah. Yeah and, Bavaro. yeah. and they didn't
4: throw the ball nearly as much as they do today. Sure. Um, and he was, you know, the, the franchise, at least on offense, was, was Phil Sims was the star of the, of the offense in many ways, the star of the team. And Parcells trusted him. And they had had so much success. And he gets hurt in December. And he's out for the season. And they go to Jeff Hostelger, who had thrown played very few snaps in his entire career, uh he'd been Hostetler's backup or since his backup for a long time and you have this Super Bowl caliber team with a huge question mark at quarterback uh and I think that's what was most amazing was that they they went to they they had a home game against the Bears and they won and he played well enough to win and then they go to San Francisco and they unseat a dynasty to get to the Super Bowl and that's not to say that they won the game because of Hostetler, although he certainly uh, came up with a several clutch plays and and fought off an injury. He hurt his I think he hurt his knee late in the game because a, a kind of a, a late hit, a questionable dirty hit uh, by one of the Forty ers linemen. And he was a gritty, tough guy who, who who used his feet in a way that Sims didn't, um, and had the respect of all his teammates. And I think that was the real thing you that stands out to me leading up to the Super Bowl against the Bills is that hot. Everybody wanted to know could Hasselbauer win? Was he going to be enough for them to play to win? And he had proven enough that he could. Um, and I think he was—he's the real sort of uh, X factor in that game. I think is was he going to the lights going to be too big for him in that game in the Super Bowl? And they weren't certainly in, in San Francisco that day—a candlestick, um,
1: an overtime game, correct? That they win?
4: Yeah. And yeah. well, no, it was—it wasn't overtime. It was—it tw- was the score was thirteen to twelve with about. Um, I think, I want to say there was about a minute, a minute and a half left and the 49ers had the ball. Okay. After, after Montana got hurt, uh, Steve Young went in and he wasn't the Steve Young we all knew, we all know today. He, he hadn't played very much. Uh, he, he was a great quarterback in college and he, the 49ers expected a lot of him, but he hadn't played. Montana was coming off of, you know, two Super Bowls, a Super Bowl MVP, a league MVP, um, and they they have the ball 13-12. They're winning with, I think, two minutes left. And Roger Craig fumbles, and they recover the, the, the Giants recover the ball with two or three minutes left, four minutes left. And Haasetler takes him down the field, and they kick a field goal with nine seconds That's left. That's right, at the six gun, six gun. yep. Um, Matt Barr kicked all five field goals for them that day. They didn't score a touchdown. They won the NFC Championship game without scoring a touchdown, which is pretty amazing. Right, the uh, last
1: nine points, too. Yeah, 13, and...
4: I, I think that's that's my memory of, of that Super Bowl is uh, or that NFC championship game is Hostetler beating a juggernaut in the 49ers um, and doing it you know taking advantage of every opportunity including Joe Montana getting hurt and Roger Craig fumbling uh, they ran a, uh, they also ran an, an awesome fake punt late in the game that got them I think their fourth field goal um, so they were you know it sort of just proved that that giant team was they weren't like the Patriots are today, or the 49ers were back then, or the Bills were in that Super Bowl. They were a real scrappy team. To, I hate to use that word, but it's true. You know, they played great defense. They ran the ball. They didn't have superstars at wide receiver. They didn't have even a superstar quarterback. They had a, a retread at running back in uh, Otis Anderson Otis, since yep. Rodney Hampton had gotten hurt. He was a first round pick that year, but he'd gotten hurt, and there was just it was a hodgepodge kind of team. And I think. More than anything, that proved, that points to the coaching and, you know, that Giants coaching staff is maybe the greatest in history, uh, you, you know, with, with Parcells and Belichick and Tom Coughlin and Charlie Weiss and Romeo Cornell And I'm sure I'm forgetting uh, Al Groh, uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone else too. But it, that's, uh, that's you know, when you talk about coaching, you look at that 90 Giants team and, and, and you see how important it is.
1: The uh, So the Giants uh, win the game in candlestick. Okay, so that oh, I want to ask you, do you remember if Hostetler or Sims played in the Bills Giants game? It was Hostetler by then, right?
4: In the regular season in game? The regular
1: season game that the that Bills was the won. Game Sims got hurt. That's the one he got hurt in, okay.
4: It's also Jim Kelly also got hurt in that game. Both quarterbacks got hurt, but Kelly was fine after the game. Sure. Uh, but it was Sims it was a kind of an icy day at at the Meadowlands and um, I can't remember exactly how Hasselberg got hurt or how Sims got hurt, but I think it was a calf or something. Uh, kinda, I think he slipped on the on the icy turf. I remember um, watching that,
1: that game at my grandmother's house. Bills won that game. Yeah, the Bills so. won the game. Um, so the Bills they beat the Raiders. Uh, the Bills, you know, in the eighties were not good. Um, they they draft Jim Kelly, and then Kelly refuses to come, which I always laugh as ironic because he hasn't left. He's still here. <laughs> he was so against coming, and uh, you know, and then of course he's here forever. So maybe it wasn't as bad as he thought, I guess. But he finally does come, uh, maybe thanks to Trump and the USFL uh, not being a thing anymore. He's he's out of mm-hmm. options, and he comes. Mm-hmm. And and it's sort of a build, like I said. They did make the AFC Championship game in um, 1988, but mm-hmm. maybe not a, a great team. I don't think they would have done as well. Against the 49ers, as the Bengals did, had they won that game, uh, the Icky Woods Bengals. Uh, and- then eighty nine, they lose to um, they lose to the Browns, and they're called the Bickering Bills in the mm-hmm. media. Um, here they were the egos of the team, uh, but then they gelled and they had a great season um, leading up to Super Bowl twenty five, and they pummeled the Raiders um, in the AFC Championship game. I think it was fifty two to three. Is fifty-one right. to 51 three? To three. The yeah.
4: finals. I think it was forty-one to three at halftime, which is
1: yeah. The game was over at halftime. Yeah.
4: To, uh, to have a game, a, a championship game, be forty-one to three at halftime is just insane. They
1: played and I'll go back a perfect. Up. I don't, game.
4: Yeah. I I would say it was less that they gelled, and I think it was more that they matured. It was a very young sure. team. Good
1: word. Yeah. Good uh, word.
4: Kelly was was not quite as young because he had played at the time in the USFL, but. Right. Dermot Thomas was in his that was his third or, well the bickering bills would have been his second year. Sure, uh, Sim uh, Bruce Smith was still fairly young. Andre right, 85
1: Reese was, first pick for uh, Smith. The
4: only yeah the only yeah. real like there were you know there were plenty of veterans sure but you know I think that James they Lofton. they matured as a team and they had Marvel Levy who um, had been around forever and I, I think it took them time to. Like you say, ma- gel, but I think maturity probably paid, played a large part of it too.
1: Maturity is probably a better word than gel. But what they did do, uh, Kelly has talked about this a lot, is they started having parties at his house every uh, yeah. after every game, after every home game that they would win. Uh, that kind of started in the um, the first Super Bowl season, that uh, that they started to uh, have these parties. And one thing that they talked about in the 30 for 30 um Thurman talked about this, that after a game, Kelly went after Howard Ballard, um, mm-hmm. I think in the 89 season, mm-hmm. um, kind of publicly trashed. Yeah, the media.
4: I think Kelly hurt his ankle in that game. Yeah, he said we have uh, four
1: good offensive linemen, but it's yeah. one guy. It was very clear he was talking about Howard Ballard. And then Thurman Thomas came to Howard Ballard's defense and mm-hmm. publicly said some things about the quarterback mm-hmm. and the plays the quarterback has to make. Bill Pullian said, all right, enough's enough and pulled Thurman first into the locker room and basically said, you can't be saying – you can't talk about the quarterback like that. Like, And then Thurman and Jim finally came together and that was sort of a big moment, just all of that sort of happening mm-hmm. um, and and sort of uh, sorting it out um, was part of maybe the maturity and maybe why I was thinking of the word jelly. I like the word mature better, but I think that – what I was thinking in my head when I said gel was they got through all that other stuff and Thomas and Kelly because of it sort of became better friends um, Mm -hmm. through that. And then the parties evolved and uh, the core of the team were really close. You know, the Kelly and Thomas and Reed and Smith and Shane Conlon and Daryl Talley. Those guys are really close. And, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and that definitely came through maturity and the maturity of the team and sure it's their first Super Bowl, but those two playoff runs and those seasons uh, were a great experience for them. You know, being able to know what it's like to lose an AFC championship game on the road, uh, to lose a game in Cleveland that was literally on their fingertips, right? Ronnie Harmon, um, that ball hits his hand. He should have caught it. Uh, he probably does catch it 99 out of a hundred times. Um, so I think those were uh, part of the build of the team, and they really had a great season um and the comeback in Cleveland um uh, led to them deciding to run the no huddle That's what I was th- gonna the say next from year, a, yeah,
4: from a purely football standpoint yeah uh, that's you know that was the thing that I think helped take them to that next level was was the, not necessarily that the K gun was so revolutionary or anything, but it just worked for them. And I think it did give them an advantage against other teams who hadn't played. You know, no one was playing against that kind of offense. Um, And, you know, I think that was even even though in the Super Bowl, which we'll get to later, that, you know, the Bills didn't, you know, they only scored 19 points. And uh, Kelly didn't have a huge game. Uh, There were times in that game where you could see how effective that that offense was, that particular offense, the K-gun, the way they ran it. Um, almost like a college offense at times. And, and, you know, it's kind of an offense. Those kind of philosophies I think you see a lot in today's NFL, which is sort of interesting to to, to see back in 1990. So, yeah, you know, there's the emotional aspect. There's the experience aspect. And then there's the purely football aspect. And I think that's one of the things that turned things around so much for them in 1990.
1: So the Bills get there. The Giants get there. Now, an interesting thing about the Super Bowl, there's no extra week. Mm -hmm. There's no off week, which you would think maybe should have favored the bills mm-hmm. in the sense that they want to run a fat. You want to wear out the, the part of what makes the K gun great is the defense is gassed, right? They can't sub mm-hmm. as much, you know, you, you would think, oh, okay. Uh, the giants had to travel from East to West uh, to play the um, NFC championship game. Uh, the bills got to stay home. Uh, you know, so just a shorter week you would have thought would favor the Bills. But, and of course the tactics, which are so important for the Giants, you would have thought, oh, maybe there's less time to prepare. We'll get to that in a second. First, let's step back from the teams and look at the world for a second. Um, when I think about this time, of course, it's the first, like, war in my lifetime, if, you know, um, the uh, the the first golf War and um I, I one thing I always remember when I think back to that is I was big into trading cards at the time and there was like one of the companies put out like Gulf War cards. Yeah, and the like, Storm and Normish Worst Yeah, yeah the so storm I remember t- that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was Tops. Tops. I think it was top. yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. The the Tops uh war set, which is weird a little bit. Um yeah. and then I always think to how WrestleMania was supposed to be in the LA Coliseum that year. Um, but it turns out they couldn't sell the tickets, and they moved it to the L.A. sports arena. But luckily for Vince McMahon, he didn't have to say they couldn't sell the tickets. Uh, he could say that due to security reasons, uh, they decided to move it to the L.A. sports arena.
4: But, I think didn't, – didn't Hulk Hogan talk about his, his Patriot missiles were going to do yeah. something – scud yeah. missiles someone else's scud missiles
1: they very much played into it because the main event at wrestlemania 7 was hulk hogan versus the turncoat sergeant slaughter up, uh who man. was yeah an iraqi sympathizer and they came very 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 close to burning an american flag um but they ended up burning a uh, hulk hogan t-shirt instead um what about the world uh and what's going on let's 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 stop here and do that right now talk about the war and its effect on the game.
4: Well, you know, the, the conflict in, in the world. Right,
1: war had, is probably the ra- wrong word, yeah.
4: Well, I mean, it, it became a war, but, you know, the conflict had started, I think, back in August. I'm not a military historian, and so it's been a while since I went over all those details. Sure. Um, but, you know, it, this had been brewing. Um, there had five—the the war sort of really started, I think— Roughly, I would say mid January, like the fourteenth, stands out in my mind. And you know, the uh, conference championships were the twenty-first, I think it was, because the Super Bowl was the twenty-eighth, I think. Um, and so, you know, things had been brewing, had been building up to this. And there was even talk. I, rem- I in my went back and looked at the book a little bit, and um, there was even talk about the championship games not being played. Yep. Uh, I don't think it was given much, you know, much thought, serious discussion. Um, but by the time they get to the Super Bowl, it's got a lot of talk. Um, you know, for those who don't remember, you know, Saddam Hussein and Iraq had invaded Kuwait and we got dragged into that. And, um, there were, I think it, more than anything, I talked to a lot, I remember back when I, when I did the research for this, you know, this is almost 10 years ago now, but, um, I talked to a handful of, you know, national security experts and some military historians. And, um, I read, you know, just hundreds of newspaper articles from the time, and the sense I really got was, in retrospect, I don't think Americans at home, not not military, right. weren't in as much danger. Were yeah, were really in that much danger. Um, I don't think we we didn't look at Saddam Hussein. I think the way that we were looking at Al Qaeda and the Taliban, you know, ten years later after September 11th, I don't sure. think it was. I don't think in reality it was that way, but I do think the perception was we were. At, Americans at, at home were in danger from, from terrorism and things like this and, and the war coming to our shores. And that's what really mattered to me more was the perception and how millions of Americans were dealing with this. And I remember reading all these articles about um, gas masks, r- run-on gas masks at local hardware stores, people going out and buying duct tape and all people worried about you know things like that, um, stocking up on canned goods you know, like we're doing today. Sure. Um, but, I think more than anything, you know, it was was it as serious a threat as, say, um, post 9-11 or, you know, what it's apples to oranges, but what we're going through today with this serious virus? No, I don't think it was. But I think Americans were worried, and I think there was a poll done by the New York Times and CBS around that time, you know, 63% of Americans were very concerned about um, terrorism or some kind of – you know their lives being at risk, and that was the thing that, and that's one of the reasons why the Whitney Houston national anthem is is so well remembered, was because it doesn't matter how the war ended, that you know the war was over not too not too much longer after that, and I'm not sure what the total de- death rate of American soldiers was, but it wasn't like World War II or Korea. Or- it was in
1: the hundreds, I think. Like I don't even think uh, there was a thousand. It wasn't
4: like a yeah. grand war that cost millions of lives and things like that. But I do think that Americans were worried and there there was, you know, this is a TV age. I think this is a, you could say this is the first war America fought when we had cable news sure. uh, and we had CNN, there's, you know, CNN was broadcasting, you know, Arthur Kent, who was actually great, a great interview for this book, was broadcasting daily from Iraq and there were Scud missiles intercepting, being intercepted by Patriot missiles in the background over his head. And Americans were seeing this; yeah. it was on the news every day, and so I think that was kind of a different dynamic than than you know maybe World War II with the movie clips before you know brief movie and um, uh, even probably in the '60s with some reporting from Vietnam. I think this was different, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was such a big deal, regardless of whether or not it was as serious of a war or as as grand scale of a war as uh, it turned out to be. Um, so I think that's that's the story of the Super Bowl. Uh, away from it is the concern. And the um, I got to meet and interview a lot of interesting people during this uh, when I did this book, I talked to a handful of uh, I remember I talked to some people who were serving on battleships in the coast, in the Gulf, the Gulf coast um, during this time. And they told me some stories about how they got to watch the game and things like that. And I also got to interview um, Dr. Ricardo Martinez, who is, for decades has been involved with Super Bowl preparation. He's always on the sidelines of every Super Bowl uh, in case there's a big injury. Um, He's sort of their go-to guy for everything medical related to the Super Bowl. And this was one of his first Super Bowls. And they were very concerned about any kind of sarin gas attack and what could happen if there was some kind of attack on the game. Um, And that was something he was dealing with 30 years ago. Uh, So I do think that that was over, that was hanging over the Super Bowl in a, in a, in a big way. And I think um, maybe n- unlike any other Super Bowl we've experienced, I remember, you know, the first Patriots Super Bowl they won that after September 11th, I think it was a little different because that was September. And this is you know September 11th was September. And that was February when they right. played that
1: yeah, almost so this, a year. This
4: is, weeks, this is a week or two after we were, essentially had started a war. Um so I think that was it was hanging over the game and I think security was unprecedented there was never security like that before a Super Bowl with, with the with the wands and the dogs the dog bomb sniffing dogs and um helicopters uh circling the field I know in the book there's a story about um uh Jim Steig who worked with who put on the Super Bowl for for years with uh with the NFL uh telling this story about how um um uh, there was a, some some helicopter had come too close to the field several times, and they were prepared to. Sh- there were people prepared to shoot it down because they weren't getting responses, and it just turned out to be a TV camera for ABC. I think I'm not entirely sure. Um, and I remember Dan Deardorff, who was one of the broadcasters of that game, is Deardorff, Frank Gifford, and Al Michaels. Oh, yeah, the Monday
1: Night Football crew.
4: Yeah, the, Mon- yeah. the old old Monday Night Football crew were, was doing this game on ABC, and. Uh, told me this story that before the couple of days before the game they were, these people brought them in and said look if there's an attack during this game you know you need to know what to do and um, you guys could be held hostage during the game like that could be a thing he has this story about how these people came in and told him what to do if they were held hostage during the game and it is a funny anecdote in there about how uh, the guy told told them to make yourself sort of thin and and breathe all your air out because it's an easier to be a hostage that way. I don't know. I don't Tough know what, for
1: Dierdorf, but. yeah.
4: Dierdorf <laughs> said it's a lot easier for Gifford and Al Michaels than it was for him. Um, so, you know, that, that was that, – that. regardless of, of how it turned out in the months and years after that, that was, that, was a, that was serious stuff going on at that Super Bowl. And that's one of the reasons why there was concern about whether or not they should even play it. Uh, and ultimately it did, and I think we were better off for it. You know, they asked the president, George Bush, George H.W. Bush – several times um over over that period you know should they play the game and you know it was kind of i remember it it was sort of like i got bigger things to deal with than that but he did answer questions saying things essentially like life goes on we need to do things that americans do during this time sure. and so they played the game and i think it was better for it and we got one of the most patriotic sports moments in history out of it which is when Houston singing the national anthem
1: right and we'll get to that in a second what the last thing i wanted to do Talk about before the game because it it becomes an issue for the Bills for years to come. What did you learn in your research about how the Bills handled themselves as far as being professionals uh, during the week leading up to the Super Bowl, especially the time in Tampa? And how does it compare in your mind to the way the Giants handled themselves? Was there a difference? Is this something that's overblown? Talk a little bit about the professionalism on the ground, boots on the ground in Tampa, teams get there, and how the Bills handled their business. And I think compared the, to the, the Giants.
0: Bills
4: were, they lived up to the uh, image, being yeah. the younger, flashier kind of team, uh, the new kids on the block in a way, I guess you would say, and the Giants were the old veterans who had been there before, literally and figuratively, and I think that, that manifested itself in the week leading up to the game, but... I don't think in any kind of exa- exaggerated, grandiose way. You know, there was no Joe Namath guarantee. There was no. They didn't make a rap video. Um, you Super know, like shuffle, yeah, like, like the Super Bears or like some other teams have. So I think they were sort of. It was a you know you were you knew who which team was the veteran, experienced team, and which was the kind of the the flashy young team. But I don't think in any way that they did anything that suggested that. Uh, they were arrogant, leading coming up the game that cost them the game that they expected to win. I think both teams ex- expected to win, and both teams certainly played that way. So I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't really feel anything that the Bills did was unprofessional um, or you know tempting fate in kind of a way. Right. I think they they handled themselves well, and I think that's probably a testament to Marv Levy um and bill polian and ralph wilson and uh you know they probably you know made it very clear that we're here to win but we're also here to keep our mouth shut and sort of in some respects
1: i think the issue may have been the decision by marv levy to not put the team on a curfew mm-hmm. um and the team did say that they there was a few nights there where they may have partied <laughs> a little bit too much now do you i don't know that that mattered in the end like i don't know if like Scott Norwood was just so fatigued from partying that he couldn't kick the field. You know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. know.
4: Well, I, w- I will uh, – I yeah. would doubt Scott Norwood was for sure. Um, but I I think uh, – you know, it, it's funny because you mentioned that because in, in the book, uh, because it was the 25th anniversary Super Bowl and it was the quarter, quarter century milestone and that was very present that week in Tampa, that this was sort of a celebration of all 25 years of the Super Bowl, not just this one Super Bowl um in the book there's a handful of sort of flashback moments i put in there because yeah. i thought they were neat little h- cases of history repeating themselves in, in a way if you read the book you'll you'll know what i'm talking about because i don't want to spoil that that part of it um but the first little flashback is to super bowl 1 and the reason why i did that uh, it's it's in the book right before james lofton catches a big makes a big catch in the first quarter of the game and the reason why it's right there is because James Lofton was at that game as a 10 year old boy with his father because the game was in Los Angeles. And uh, that game was in Los Angeles, Super Bowl One, Packers, Chiefs. Um, the first touchdown in, in Super Bowl history is caught by Max McGee, who actually caught two touchdowns. And if you if you have YouTube and you don't know what I'm talking about, type Max McGee Super Bowl touchdown because sure. it's a tremendous catch. It's a tremendous touchdown. And the fact that it's the first touchdown in Super Bowl history is pretty awesome. Uh, and he was hung over like he could barely stand at that game. <laughs> uh he didn't even take he didn't even have a helmet. He left his helmet in the locker room because he was so hung over that he had to borrow a teammate's helmet. Uh and he ended up catching, I don't know, nine passes for 130 yards and two touchdowns or something like that. So <laughs> it's funny that um I, I think probably nine times out of ten uh, I, I think a curfew probably wouldn't affect these guys. These guys are professionals. Now right. you're talking about high school team, college team. That's another matter. But um, I think uh, in, in the Super Bowl, you guys, those guys, don't get there without knowing how to take care of themselves.
1: Wayne Gretzky tells this pretty cool story about how the Oilers were the last team that the New York Islanders beat when they won their four Super Bowl or Super Bowl, their four Stanley Cups in the early '80s, and the Oilers were so bummed out at the Nassau Coliseum that they didn't win the Stanley cup and they're walking out of the arena and Wayne Gretzky's like, Oh man, we got to walk by the Islanders are going to be partying. We got to walk by them to get to the bus. He said they walked by the locker room and all these guys are just like gassed and they're just like sitting at their stalls and kind of, you know, that there was a, and that he realized that day that like that, what it would take to be a Stanley cup champion that, you know, but anyway, um, So we get to the game. The week it's it's, there isn't the two weeks, which is maybe good to limit the paranoia a little bit. And um, you know, maybe two weeks uh, for the Bills might have been tough for them here. The anticipation here in Buffalo, I can tell you, was unbelievable. Like all you talked about in school, you know, as I was in school at the time, the Super Bowl. You know, were you going to watch it? Are the Bills going to win? You know, crazy. The the hype in Buffalo for this game was crazy. People were pumped. Um, the last time the city was in a championship, the Sabres made the Stanley Cup in 1975 and they lost to the Flyers. So it had been a while um, mm-hmm. um, where the Buffalo team had a chance to win a championship. All right, let's talk about the anthem because that is a defining uh, moment. We've met, we've talked about it a few times. Uh, it's sung by Winnie Houston, who's sort of in her in the height of her fame, really. Right. I mean, this is right around Mm -hmm. the time of the bodyguard and her huge hit, uh, the Dolly Parton song. I will always love you. And all the weeks that that was number one on the charts. Um, and she's beautiful, right? I mean, if you watch this, um, it's hard to fathom that she would, you know, die drowning in a bathtub after Mm -hmm. years of drug abuse. But at this point, that's not Whitney Houston, right? What, what people may remember of what she became. She's not that. and, and, at super bowl 25 mm-hmm. she's the beautiful girl that you ever hear the story about billy joel is showing off to some girls he's playing the piano and he looks up and it's al mcpherson uh christy brinkley and whitney houston are the girls he's showing off to so no. it's that it's that whitney houston right the beautiful mm-hmm. um the amazing voice and she sings the anthem now pre-recorded though right
4: i if i remember right. Um... I was told it's it absolutely was not because I know uh-huh. I, I didn't actually interview Whitney Houston. Although I think if I go back, I, I did exchange some emailed questions with her, her people. agent, that yeah. she was supposed to pass on to her. Her the agent was supposed to pass on to her, and and I got some very short responses. Um, I did talk to I can't remember the name now, but the but the person who directed the orchestra during it, sure, and everyone told me it was it was live, and I didn't really have the, uh, well, I didn't have the stomach for it for one, but I definitely, I didn't have the, the access to really nail that piece of investigation, investigation (laughs) down. But from everything I was told and that I researched, it was, it was live and it wasn't, um, recorded. Uh, and I wouldn't be able to, to decipher one way or the other, to be honest. Um, and I don't think it really detracts one way or another, but it is like, you know, that is the question. I mean, it's like, it's like the fake in the moon landing. It's part it's, of the uh, lore,
1: the the part yeah. of the folklore of the of the performance. But it's it's amazing. I mean, probably still haven't seen a better one. Um, yeah. Although that's, I guess, debate. You know, debatable. I guess, but a beautiful.
4: Probably, I, I mean, very unanimously considered. music great. But I I'd hard, be hard pressed to think of a more famous performance of the national anthem. I don't think. Yeah, maybe that. there's
1: some infamous ones like you can think <laughs> of, but certainly yeah. in terms of f- like famous for being great and yeah, she 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 now she did a, a great job and yeah. now that and that is sort of what leads up to, sets the tone for the game. Um, so we sort of set the stage here. Now the Bills are favored. Um, going into the game, they're the favorite. Like we had said, they had beaten the Giants. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that they beat all four of the NFC teams they played that year. Um, I know they were 13-3. and three. I'm trying to think of the three losses. I think they beat the four of uh, the NFC teams. I was at the Eagles game, which um, featured a 90-plus-yard uh, touchdown pass from yes. Randall Cunningham to Fred Barnett. Where, it was
4: 95 yards yeah, from his own end zone. Yeah.
1: Uh, Bruce Smith was on literally on Cunningham's back for a split second yeah. before he shook him off and um, – and that was below I think they me. They
4: lost to the Dolphins early. Yeah, they split with the I Dolphins. Remember, they beat, them, they beat them later. So that was one of the, lo- the losses. Uh,
1: they, they had a lot of success in this era in general versus the NFC, except mm-hmm. for the Super Bowl yeah. games. Um, uh, they, they really did um, play really well. Their losses were week two to the Dolphins, uh, week 12 to the Oilers, which I think was a Monday night game. Or a Sunday night game. Oh, and they did lose the, the, to the Redskins in Week 17, although yeah, they, had they had locked clinched up everything yeah. uh, at home the week before against the Dolphins. So yeah. I don't think that those were the starters. So they had beaten the Eagles, uh, the Giants, and the Cardinals, I think, were the other team at the time. Yeah, 45-14 to 14 in one of the worst weather games in the history of Rich Stadium. Uh, the Cardinals punted, and the ball ended up behind the punter. Uh, it got caught up in the wind and blew behind them. Okay. Anyway, so the bills are sort of the favorite, although both teams are 13 and three and the giants had just beaten, as we said, uh, the 49ers. Okay. Uh, we're at the game three to three after the first quarter and then, uh, 12 to 10 after, uh, the, at halftime and it's 12 to 10 because of sort of a cool thing, um, one of those trivia questions, right? The Bills got a safety in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce Smith had the safety. What about the first half um, specifically? You mentioned the big play to Lofton. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bills um, and Giants both score one touchdown, I think, um, in the half. What about the yeah. first half?
3: I
4: think the first half, it's hard to say that you know it made such a difference, but the safety that – Bruce Smith got on Hostetler. Hostetler— How would he
1: hold on to the ball, right? He,
4: yeah, he yeah. sort of fell. I think he said later that Otis Anderson had kind of gotten in his way, but he didn't really blame him. I think he just sort of said he got he kind of got in his way. He fell, and if you watch the replay, I mean, imagine what Bruce Smith's hands look like. I Just imagine what they look yeah. like today. Yeah. But uh, back then especially, he grabs Hostetler's—I'm trying to imagine it in my head. I think it was his right wrist because he had the ball. Yep. And if he grabbed, you know, three inches up earlier, higher up on his hand, he has the ball. Ball's in the end zone. Who knows what happens? But, right. And then, then, like, a several Giants collapse on him, and Hostetler still manages to clasp his hands together and tighten it. If, you know, if he fumbles and it's recovered, that's seven points, not two. Um, you know, say what you will, that, that could have changed the game. You know, obviously, you know, the game's played differently. If you're down seven, and five, you know, five more points, who knows? But it was that's sort of the thing that stood out to me uh, mostly about that the first half. But then also, and we'll get into this I'm sure after uh, after we talk about the end of the first half. But the Giants score before halftime on a very long play. I can't exactly remember, but you know they had the ball for eight nine plays, ate up the whole the rest of the clock, um, score a touchdown. A great pass from Hassettler to Stephen Baker, um, and they get back in it right right there. And then you pair that. This is what I always think of. You know, you in any time you watch the Patriots play, but maybe maybe not now since they don't have Brady, but they always talk about how Belichick loves to score at the end of the half and then get the ball back at the beginning of the half. Right. And that's how they controlled so many games over their dynasty. Peyton and
1: Breeze, too. Peyton and Breeze yeah, have made their living off that. Yeah.
4: I, I that's exactly what happens in this game is the the Giants are up or Giants are down twelve three and then the next time the Bills have a meaningful possession, you know, because they do get a, the ball back and they kneel, kneel before yeah. that. Mm-hmm. The next time they get the ball back, they're down 17-12 because they scored a touchdown, went into halftime, scored another touchdown. Um, and there was like an hour between Kelly and Therma Thomas even like taking, running a play. Right. The long the halftime, of course. The game flips in my, in my memory um, is the ability of the Giants to convert third downs, and r- run these back-to-back drives that, I don't know, it, it was probably like 18 plays and probably 15 or 16 minutes off the game clock. Um, well, and that's where the game flips right there.
1: Well, one of the brilliant... well, like we, Quick thing about the fumble before we get too far away from that. Last year in the playoffs, Drew Brees fumbled um, in the game against the Vikings. Yeah, Very similar play where the defender hits him sort of midway in the arm Breeze did drop the ball, fumbled. Ultimately, we got the Saints got the ball back and did tie the game. But I remember when that happened in my living room, thinking about Hostyler, like, mm-hmm. oh damn, that reminded me of that. Not in the end zone, but reminded me of that. Anyway, um, the 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 game plan of the Giants is sort of really uh, let's the best way to stop the K gun is to not let the K gun be on the field, right mm-hmm. and to keep Kelly and Thomas and Reed on the bench and to shorten the game. And this, what you just said, is really where we see them really shorten the game.
4: That's what Parcells talked about during the the week. Uh, He even said it in the media, so you can imagine how often he said it to his players, was taking the air out of the ball. And, um, you know, that's why Otis Anderson was so important, uh, was because with every handoff he got, you know, they could eat up another 40 seconds. Right. Um, and that was the game plan it was exactly, it's it exactly right. What you said, it was, uh, I don't think they thought they could necessarily stop the bills offense, but when you only let them have the ball, you know, when there's a two to one possession time o'clock possession, um, which it was, it ended up being the bills had the ball for 19 and a half minutes and the giants had it for 40 and a half minutes. And, that you know, that was the best defense the Giants could have had, and that's saying something considering they had Lawrence Taylor and Leonard sure. Marshall and Everson Walls and, and so many great players. Uh, and it, it worked exactly the way it did, it, it, exactly the way it should. And um, I think that was the game plan. More than anything, that was the game plan.
1: You're down 12-3 with 10 minutes left in the third quarter, nine minutes left, or second quarter, excuse me. And then you just eliminate the second quarter and put seven points on the board. Yeah. Huge, huge, huge part of the game, as you said. And then they start the um, the uh, the third quarter. Of the touchdown. Halftime is interesting in Super Bowl twenty-five because it's really not even close to what we think of as the halftime show. I know. Now. It's
4: Funny, you know, they even talk about. I think I think uh, Super Bowl one. You know, we 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 know that that was the. the in the nascent era of the Super Bowl. There was, you know, fifty thousand empty seats. It was like ten dollars a ticket. The halftime show was something like up with people. There were two networks broadcasting it. Right. Yep. And that tells you everything you need to know about Super Bowl one. But then you know, this is twenty five years later. The Super Bowl is a big deal now, and I think they had like like new kids on new the kids block. New kids on the
1: block was the halftime entertainment, and yep. I
4: think Michael Jackson was there briefly, and I think they had some other weird. They had some other weird I'd have to go back and look, but some other weird thing that you you wouldn't it, it was nothing like it was it is yeah. today, or even ten years later, I don't think. Um you know, I've been to two Super Bowls and uh the halftime show is for many people is the real story. So it you know, that certainly wasn't the case back then.
1: The halftime show was titled A Small World Salute to Twenty Five Years of the Super Bowl. It was produced by Disney and featured three thousand five hundred local children from diff- different ethnic backgrounds and a performance by new kids on the block with special guest, Warren moon, mm. new kids on the block and Warren moon synonymous for years and years. Yeah. Now, yeah. this is what's really interesting. It didn't broadcast. They uh, did
4: have, I know, um, they definitely went to the networks, went to the uh, news. coverage of the, of the Gulf war. Yeah. I think there was an address from the president and first lady. Um, you're right. Uh, that was, like like we were talking about earlier, that was what was going on. People yeah. weren't as interested in halftime shows. I don't think that would happen today still. No. I think if we were in the middle of a war, we would still see – You'd uh, find Lady a way to God, get it in. Whoever okay. it was.
1: Uh, the, um, they did play it after the game, but most affiliates went to the, you know, the famous what's on after the Super Bowl, yeah. um, and that was a show called Davis Rules. I um, remember it. Yeah, I yeah. think it had
4: John Winters.
1: That's right. Yep, Uh, alumni
4: um, from Kenyon College. That's why I remember. Yeah,
1: of course. Also, uh, Andy Green, uh, the alumnus I met a couple weeks ago, who's got a book about the office. Um, Yeah, so that's halftime. Uh, Nothing like what halftime is today. I remember going into my kitchen and pouring a glass of Crystal Pepsi. Uh, Ah, that's a that's
4: a timely yes. yes. That dates it right there. Yes,
1: and I remember coming back into the living room where we had a little, you know, a little party, people over, more probably more appropriate uh, for the game. I just remember getting my Crystal Pepsi uh, and sitting down as the Giants were driving in their their opening drive, which Otis Anderson scores a one-yard touchdown Mm -hmm. uh, to give them the lead, and it took nine and a half minutes off the third quarter. I don't
4: know if that's still the longest drive in Super Bowl history. I, I believe it was at the time. I think it was 14 plays, also, which I, I would imagine is still yep, the record. Yeah, 14 have, have
1: plays it. is correct. Otis Anderson, a one yard. I'm just, I got some notes. I don't remember all this. I took notes. Um, and uh, the, the big 14 yard, 14 yard pass to Mark Ingram on third yes. and 13.
4: Yeah, that was that was the play that I think a lot of people. After, immediately after the game because people's memories aren't so great years later, but the play after the game that everybody talked about as the most important play of the game. Yep. Was uh, I think it was it was third and thirteen. Yep. And Hostetler threw like a seven yard pass. And Mark Ingram, whose you know son is now the great right. running back for the Ravens, yep. um was it was like he was playing one of those old Madden games where you could hop sideways, you know, he was just he was lightning in a bottle and then five broken tackles like, he got like a yard shy of the marker and then sort of spun back and dove right at the marker and it was just an amazing play i mean yeah. it was it, that's a backbreaker that that's the thing is i don't remember the total number but the number of third down completions the giants had was it it, it had to be like 7 of 9 and several of them were long, were more than just like a yard or two. And, the, and conversely, I know that the Bills had very few for third down conversions. Um, I think they may have had two. And I one have was, the
1: stats and, written down on that yeah, somewhere. That
4: was that was the that was if you're going to point to a game, a stat after the time of possession, it had to be the third down conversion.
1: Bills on were one it. of eight.
4: Yeah, and I think and the, the one was on the game, you know, the, on the drive that Norwood sure. kicked the field goal.
1: And the Giants were nine of sixteen.
4: Yeah, so that was, I mean, you're you're talking about gassing a defense, staying on the field. You know, the whole point about keeping the Giants off, the Bills offense off the field, that was, I mean, that was perfection. I mean, uh, Ron Earhart and uh, Parcells were were just masters in that day.
1: And here's what's crazy. So the Bills haven't been, the offense hasn't been on the field. It's almost two hours of real time since the Bills are last on the field. Then they go three and out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, not doing your defense much of a favor to go three and out there, um, but the Bills do stop the Giants on a fourth and two
0: Yeah, uh, that was on a big- that
1: next drive. A huge play uh, for the Bills to get a, a stop. Um, uh, Bruce Smith uh, made that play. Bruce Smith had a great game. Uh, they get the ball back and four plays, 63 yards. Uh, Thurman Thomas on the first play of the fourth quarter scores a touchdown and the Bills go up 1917
4: that's Uh, the real criminal aspect of this game is anyone who talks about Super Bowl 25
1: wow Thurman it's
4: Norwood's miss and then if if you're going to go a little further you know maybe you talk about Hostetler that's what Hostetler is famous for Um, Belichick the start of Belichick yeah Belichick last day with the Giants um, uh, Parcells being carried off and so Thurman Thomas on that day had as good a Super Bowl as any running back has ever any in the history of the Super Bowl I don't know if you could say anyone played better than Thurman Thomas did. He I think he averaged 10 yards a touch, which there's no no one's doing that in the Super Bowl these days. Right. Um, or any day. He was he was just amazing that day and that touchdown that he had that gave the Bills the lead was was he, I, there's a, he he puts his head down, and knocks someone over and then just bounces it to the outside and, and runs another 25 yards or whatever it is for a touchdown and you know that's what it, it, there's only one Super Bowl in 54 years where the losing team had the MVP. It was Super Bowl V. Chuck Howley got it for the um, Dallas Cowboys when they lost to the Colts.
1: You can make a case and for Thomas here. I, I sure. think there yeah. is
4: a legitimate case that Thurman Thomas was the best player on the field that day. And, uh, and I think people, you know, it's, it's terrible. Thurman Thomas is never, no one. Marshall Falk was after him and Ladanian Tomlinson and now we have Christian McCaffrey and whoever else you want to talk about Kamara, catching sure. catching eighty passes a year and running for twelve hundred, thirteen hundred yards. Um Thurman Thomas was was just so good at that.
1: Growing up here, you'd always if when you're talking about running backs, right? Barry Sanders mm-hmm. and Hammond Smith and Thurman Thomas were like the three best in the league at the time. The argument for Bills fans are like, yeah, Sanders might be better behind the line of scrimmage and at first making the first guy miss and you know Emmett Smith is great too but Thurman can catch the ball nobody's an all-around back like Thurman uh, a piece of trivia I wrote down which is pretty cool about Thomas's touchdown it took the points scored in the Super Bowl uh, from and this was helped by the safety obviously it took it from 994 to 1000 Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and then the extra point was the 1,001 point in the Mm. Super Bowl. Um, All right, so fourth quarter, the Bills have a lead. So that 10-year-old kid in Buffalo who couldn't even believe the Bills could be in a Super Bowl, uh, the Bills find themselves uh, with a fourth-quarter lead, um, but not for long. Uh, The Giants go 14 plays, 74 yards, half of which – Mark Bavaro has remembered for his great, great game in the other Super Bowl, the Giants won in 86, but he makes a good a big play here. And again, 7 minutes and 32 seconds are gone from this quarter uh, on this drive. Um, and the second field goal of the game is kicked by Matt Barr to make it 2019, uh, which obviously is eventually the final score. Um, anything about that drive? No, it Cornelius It uh, made the big play um, To break up the third down pass Yeah because they
4: did get down to like yeah. The three or the two mm-hmm. um, And I mean it, Bavaro I think that may have been Bavaro's last game I can't remember if he came back after that um, But Yeah he played you know more third down Conversions they had at least at least two In that drive Last um, game for, for was, the
1: Giants for Bavaro Yeah yeah,
4: yeah. I think we go to the Eagles Yeah so,
1: Browns right? and Eagles
4: yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, Hostetler wasn't the MVP, didn't have a great, did nothing virtually in his career before that, had a decent career with the Raiders a few years later, but the third down conversions in this game, like we were talking about, I mean, you got to give him the credit for that. And that's what's another thing, you know, one of the most memorable things about that game is Hostetler on third down. And that drive, I think there were at least the Bavaro, one of the Bavaro catches is on third down. Um, I think there was another. Later, there was definitely another one later in the game. Uh, but yeah, that's those, that's the thing. That, and, and it was so fitting that, you know, the Bills are losing. Thurman Thomas has this amazing touchdown run, flashy, you know, unbelievable touchdown run. They take the lead. And what happens? The Giants plod their way down the field and kick yep. the field goal and take the lead. It was Sucked just sort the of life
1: like, out of the game again.
4: It was just yep. a perfect metaphor for yep. those two teams.
1: So the Bills get the ball back, but punt.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And the Giants get the ball back, but the Bills do th- force them to punt um, and get the ball at the 10-yard line uh, with two minutes and 16 seconds well,
4: left. That's what I'll say. Before we start there, yeah. I just want to mention, uh, you know, uh, growing up, you know, we're roughly the same age. Can you think of a, like, more intimidating and scary kind of guy to talk to than Bill Parcells? No. Um, I
1: Not in football I circles, got- yeah.
4: I was very fortunate to interview him several times for this book and for other books. Um, and the first time I ever talked to him, he called me. I was at a movie with my wife, and I saw there was Bill Parcells calling me, and I it was very uh, uneasy just to talk to him at all. Um, and I we finally started talking, and he was the nicest guy, the most inviting interviewee. I had a just a wonderful experience. I had great experience with Belichick too because I got to interview Belichick for this book.
1: They're both save really the, good at interviews. It, but yeah, you wouldn't
4: think they would be. You know, you see Belichick in his press conferences. He's so
1: that's not the time, yeah, right? Yeah,
4: yeah. But for me, when I interviewed him, he was fantastic. But Parcells was fantastic um, every time I talked to him. Couldn't have been more inviting, and welcoming when I asked him questions, and, and very frank too. Because I think you know he wasn't an NFL coach anymore, but. The thing, the one thing I remember most about interviewing him for this book was that he told me that on that drive they had third and three maybe um, and you know there's like three minutes left they they let the they had run a play before the clock was it was a running play so that, or, or it was a pass that stayed in bounds so the clock was still running they let the clock drive down to one. They called timeout, so they had like third and four, third and five, something, third and two. And they called timeout, and Parcells and Hostetler and Ron Earhart, who's their offense coordinator, were discussing what to do. And Parcells really wanted to call a play, call a, pl- a pass, which obviously, you know, like complete game's probably over. Right, Incomplete, you give the Bills the ball back, they save a timeout. You sure. know, that classic late game strategy, you know. And I guess Parcells said he, – he told me this. He told me he had never told anybody this at the time, that um, he just – he beat himself up so much over that because at the end of the – when the time was running out on the play clock and they had to get back and call play, he said, uh, we'll play conservatively, we'll run the ball. They ran a draw with Hostetler. They got nothing. They had to punt the ball back to uh, the, the Bills. And he told me when I was on the phone with him, he said that when Norwood was kicking his field goal at the end of the game – Parcells, all he could think about, he wasn't thinking about the not field throwing. goal. All he could think about was he said something like, and I don't know if we're PG or not on this, but no, he said something like, if you, the balls, if you had had more balls and called a passing play, we would this game would have been over already. Wow, that's so awesome. That was really cool to think about. That, that's what I think about a, a, a misplay. And really, you know, the whole game is uh, how Parcells was just you – in know, the last 15 minutes of that game, Parcells was just eaten up by that decision. I'm sure you know they lose that game because Norwood makes a field goal. You know that's haunting him for the rest of his life. Sure. So, so I think that was that was what I remember about about that more than anything else.
1: You were saying how you were walking into a movie theater and, and with your wife and Parcells calls you a couple of weeks ago at the start of this quarantine. Uh, I had Scotty Bowman on the podcast <laughs> and uh, kind of a, a, a hockey writer friend kind of hooked it up and he sent me Scotty's number and I text Scotty and he said I'll call you uh and and we'll talk about it if we if he was going to do it or whatever he want i don't know he wanted to call me first and we were watching tiger king you know yeah. everyone watched that during this quarantine or whatever and i looked over at my wife and said you're gonna have to pause this scotty bowman's calling me
4: well there you, <laughs> i remember
1: it, it, and she's like who <laughs> and i was
4: like oh god that's Just pause what i it. remember yeah. it, the movie we went to see was toy story three. Oh, nice and i remember thinking to myself I can't tell Bill Parcells who I've never talked to yet. You going to that see I'm Toy going story. To see story three. So, <laughs> that's what I remember. That's what I remember about that. So
1: the Bills get the ball back, and this is sort of Jim Kelly's moment in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. This drive is really uh, Jim Kelly making a lot out of nothing. A lot of this drive are Kelly scrambles, Kelly extending plays uh, to get him as close as they did. Um, it was really Kelly and Thomas were very, very crucial to get him to the twenty-nine yard line. Um, which yeah, Kelly
4: Thomas had two, had two, uh, another fantastic runs. It was like, it, it, I mean, they just couldn't tackle him that day.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Thomas runs and Kelly scrambles is what I wrote down in my notes. Uh, get him to the 29 yard line, which is literally probably, you know, that's the range. That's it. The, like, he's not yeah. definitely not hitting a 48 yarder. Yeah. Um, it's a forty seven yard field goal, of course, on grass. And it's a tough spot to put Norwood in because um he he was missing from that distance in uh warm ups. That was r- really the his range. That's it. He's his five far... I
4: think he was he was like 0 for five on grass yep. from more than forty five. You're right. Maybe uh, it was one for five. But yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, that stat I remember I remember it sticks out because He'd been there a while, and they didn't even – so it's like they didn't even try to kick field goals with him if it was 46 or 47. They probably would have either punted or gone for it, I guess, yeah. because he didn't have that – I mean, on the road at least, because right. he probably kicked more of them at Rich Stadium. But um, just still, you know, they knew what they had. I mean, they, what were they going to do, though? They weren't going to – Right, yeah. put on another play, nope. and they weren't going to try to hail Mary. Nope. So they had no other choice.
1: And, I mean – he had the, he may have the distance. Yeah. You know, it's true. not like it fell short. So, yeah. but, um, I wanted to ask you, like, do you remember where you were? Like, do you remember this play live? Like, can you remember uh, this in real time?
4: No, no, I was, I was, uh, eight. So I, I remember watching the game, but I don't, I must've fallen. I mean, it was probably like ten thirty at night. Right.
1: Yeah. The or, game, oh, I think yeah, they no, were, I, was, there. I
4: was. I'm sure I was asleep.
1: The, uh, Obviously, this is a much bigger deal in my life than it was for yours because my whole city is watching yeah. this and my whole family. But I just remember how quiet it was. Uh, nobody was saying anything. The whole before drive the kick? before the kick, the yeah. whole drive. I remember like my mom shrieking a few times. You know, like everyone was. It was really tense. Um, I just remember kind of looking around the room. Uh, my mom was actually pregnant with my brother. Um, he wasn't even alive. My other brother was really young and was sleeping, um, and I just remember kind of looking around, and it was so quiet. Um,
4: See, this is why I go back to whether or not this is the greatest Super Bowl or not. And like I, you know, there was that Steelers Cardinal Super Bowl had the touchdown, Roethlisberger to H- Santonio Holmes. There was the year the Giants upset the Patriots when they were undefeated. We've had so many Super Bowls that do come down to that last minute. And I think you can compare errors and everything, but that drive was on par with any of those moments.
1: It was very, very tense, very quiet. And I remember one person asking my dad, do you think he's going to make it? And um, my dad said, I don't know, but I hope so, or something like that. Because mm-hmm. they uh, did... I- because they did yes, ice him. They did they ice, ice them. Yeah. I And I remember feeling like it took a long time from the last play to when he mm-hmm. finally kicked the ball. Like that felt like an eternity. Yeah. Um, And I just remember it being very quiet. And I remember I can picture the TV. I can picture where I was in my childhood living room. I can feel that moment. And he missed it. Mm-hmm. And – I gave my mom a hug and went upstairs. I did not want to be a part of it. I did. not Cause I wasn't really a bills fan, mm-hmm. um, but I certainly wasn't going to dance on anyone's grave. And honestly, I wanted him to win. I wanted it for my city mm-hmm. uh, and for my friends and my family. But I just remember getting the hell out. I didn't want to even, I didn't even look at my dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I didn't even want to make eye contact with them. I just got the hell out of there. went upstairs and I was playing Sega Genesis Probably before uh, Scott Norwood made it to the locker room, you know I just wanted no part of it. Uh, obviously, he missed the kick wide right. Um, it, you know, it's one of the more famous plays, obviously, in Super Bowl history. And I remember. So then, fast forward to Super Bowl 44, and I'm having a Super Bowl party in my house, and my team is playing, and everyone is there. All my friends and family have Saints stuff on, um, and. I remember um, a few plays before Tracy Porter intercepted it. Not that play, before that play. But, oh, I remember what it was. Uh, one of the Saints got hurt uh, during that drive, the Colts drive, and the the game went to commercial. Mm. And I remember sort of looking around and saying to my mom, wow, this feels a lot like Super Bowl twenty five before – the Norwood kick. Everyone yeah, is were so going quiet. Came up, the Saints right? were ahead by seven. Yeah. And there was uh, four, the, the about three minutes on the clock when Tracy Porter intercepted it. So right. figure at this point, there's probably about four minutes on the clock. I just remember this, saying to my mom, wow, this feels a lot like that again. We're all in a living room. Everyone's really quiet and tense. Um, and I guess luckily for me, it, it ended better. Tracy Porter then a few plays later intercepts it. And I had had surgery. um, a few weeks before the game. And my brother, Greg was assigned to me by my mom uh, to make sure that I didn't ruin the stitches or anything <laughs> that I stayed relatively calm. And he did a good job during the Arizona game and a good job in the NFC championship game. But somehow ended up jumping into his arms during Tracy Porter play. Anyway, the bills miss it and they lose. And this is as close as they got. They mm-hmm. played in four of these, but this was the only one they had a chance to win.
4: Well, I will, not I do remember, because I. Do, it's funny that you asked what I was doing with this, and I remember where I've been for every Super Bowl since after this. Sure. And I remember the second Cowboys well, game. Well, I have a
1: story about that, but go ahead. I think yeah. they were
4: up 13 to 10 at halftime, right? It was 13 and Then they had to a punt s- block or something. It
1: was 13 to 6, and mm-hmm. my mom had an aunt uh, that loved football. That's how my mom... Came to love football. She loved the Raiders in the seventies, right? And she was in Phoenix, Arizona. And my mom called her during halftime of the second Cowboys game and said, "Oh, Auntie, do you think we're gonna do it? Are we yeah. finally gonna do it?" And then Thurman Thomas fumbled the first play from scrimmage to start the second half, mm-hmm. and the Cowboys returned it for a touchdown. I yeah, want to say,
4: right? I want to say it
1: made it up one. They might have only been up six. I think it was thirteen-seven. And the fumble – they went from ahead at halftime to one play into the second half being down by a point. Mm. So, yeah, they – they. but, again, being up at halftime isn't as close, to, I, I don't think, as – No, you're right. For the win. Um, the
4: they Redskins were, game wasn't close at all. No, they – The Cowboys caught, game was the – should have been the biggest blowout in Super Bowl history, but if Leon, if Yeah, right, saved play. the
1: day there. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they didn't get – and they, you know what? This was the only time they were the better team, too. Those Cowboy teams were better than them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The Redskins were a great, great team. They were better than them. Um, but they left this one on the table. They were the better team. Uh, like we said way earlier, they got the matchup probably they wanted, not having to play the 49ers, who could have caught up. Caught, that would have been a much better Super Different, maybe not better, that's the wrong word, a much different Super Bowl. Because uh, yeah. I think the uh, 49ers probably would have tried to outscore them.
4: Well, they certainly would have been the favorite in that Super Bowl.
1: Right. Um So, it's a much different uh thing. Um How do we cl- how do we end this? What what's the uh for you, what's the legacy of Super Bowl 25? Is it just as simple as the kick or is there more to no, it than that? I
4: I think oh, that's a good question. Uh I think that's I hate to put it that way, but I think that is kind of the legacy because you can't really have a legacy until you look back years later. And this is the one that slipped away for them, um, that you had Kelly and Thomas and Talley and Smith and Bennett and Conlin and Reed and Lofton and Hull and Wilford, and they never cashed it in. Um, and I think, you know, as harsh as that is, it's the same, it's the same way for Marino and it, was, it would have been the same way for Elway, and it's the same way for whoever else. Be the
1: same way for Peyton and Breeze if they didn't yep. have that one, right? Every Definitely. every time we've lost in the last three years, someone said to me, "Well, you won forty four though, you got yeah. that one." Yeah, sucks that you got beat on the Minnesota Miracle or whatever it called, and it's ridiculous that that wasn't pass interference, and ah, uh, it sucks that you lost. You played a bad game and lost to the Vikings last year, but at least you won forty four. Yeah. Right? So, the, but the legacy of those Bills teams is. You can't say that they never did get across.
4: You can't, and you, you can't escape that. Like, first of all, Tal- Kelly's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Reed's in
1: the Hall of Fame. Reed's Smith's in the Hall of, Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. Uh,
4: Thomas. Thomas, you know, Smith.
1: Kent Hall should be in the Hall of Fame, but people forget
4: so, about. You, and Mark Levy's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Bill Polian's probably in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you can't you, you can't say it's unfair because it is fair. I mean, yeah ultimately they had four bites of the apple and they didn't finish and no one's ever going to do that again um patriots so I, haven't I been that, to four in a row that's all that's almost really i think the legacy I, I think uh i think somewhere along the lines in the book i called it the murkiest dynasty in sports history sure because to win to get to four straight is an achievement no one's ever been to four straight Super Bowls.
1: patriots have been uh, to three in a row never four and they've
4: and Same they lost all of them. So how yeah. how do you parse that out? That they were the best at getting to second place is kind of the you know. So that's really the ultimate legacy, I think. Of I don't know if it's the legacy of Super Bowl twenty five necessarily. It's certainly the legacy of the Bills of that era. Um, but I, I do think the legacy of the game itself is that America too, right? Um, yeah, I, I think it's that just that it was it was one of the greatest games in the history of a sport that has in the his in in a game that has so many famous episodes you know sure. you, i could never imagine putting together the hopefully i'll live this long the you know the 100th anniversary of the super bowl um i could not see myself saying super bowl 25 belongs on that greatest of all time lists regardless of what happens you know you know there's so there've been so many great super bowls since then um i don't think you can there, there's no way to to, to leave this game off that list
1: yeah well, this is great. This is really fun. Uh, Adam, uh, again, the books, the three I've read, I love them all. Super Bowl Monday is the one we kind of focused on today, talking about Super Bowl twenty-five. But we also mentioned uh, Montana and Young, the book uh, Best of Rivals, which I can see from across the room. I can see it on my bookshelf. And then the Redskins book, which I can see too. But uh, what's the name of the Redskins book? Hail to the Redskins. Hail to the Redskins. And then there's a golf book. What's the name of that one? Chasing Greatness. And they're all on uh, – you know it's tough to get stuff, the the the, law, the backlog of Amazon. But if you want to read any of them, the second you hear this, they're all on, um, you know, Apple uh, to read as a digital file or Amazon as well for the Kindle. I
4: know I know Best of Rivals is on Audible. Okay. Uh, I can't, I'm not sure about the other the other ones, but I know Best of Rivals is. So yeah, uh, you can and if you want to go to my website, which is it has links to all those. So
1: awesome. Let me ask you this. We'll get you out here in this. Don't worry about having to convince anyone about sales or uh, – but let's say someone came to you and said, eh, you know what? I, I want to finance a book. What do you want to write about? Write any book you want, and we'll put it out there. We'll see what happens. What would you – um, like?
4: If it was just a sports book, um, I do want to write – I haven't had luck getting it um, approved any time, But I still think there's a book about the Ravens and the Steelers rivalry. Oh, I think you're uh, right. Yeah. I think they're – you know, everybody's biased. I'm biased. Um, and it, you can't quantify these things. But the Ravens and the Steelers in the last 15 years I think has been every bit Lakers-Celtics, Redskins – or uh, Red Sox-Yankees, uh, whoever else you want to put in Michigan, Ohio State – And I think that there's just something about those two franchises that the story, I just love the story about it, even if if I wasn't so tied to the Steelers. um, And the fact that I think it's just so great that it was born out, the Ravens were born out of the Browns, who were the Steelers' rival for so long. Right. I just think there's, you know, we talk about this book with uh, the Bills and the Giants. You know, uh, Kelly's in the Hall of Fame, Lawrence Taylor's in the Hall of Fame, Thomas is in the Hall of Fame. Belichick, Parcells, Levy—you know the the Ravens, Steelers—you know all there's tons of guys. Sure. Hines Ward, Ed Reed, Mar, uh, Ray Lewis, you know, Lamar Jackson now, um, Harbaugh and Tomlin and and Cowher and Ozzie Newsom. It's that's to me is is a, is a, is another one of those that's a good one. Little intersections of, of great talent and and every year there was because when I did want to do this book a while ago and it didn't really materialize. And I, this wouldn't be updated as of right now. This is probably like 2015, 2016. But I had done the numbers and like – they had, every game from like 2004 or 2005 to, to that point, so like a 10 or 12-year span, the average game was like 19 to 18 or something like that. And, you know, it, it's so great to have those games in the NFL. Was These it on
1: Thanksgiving? Eight, eight, Thanksgiving night when the – the,
4: no, I'd say the average score of all I'm just the games. saying, like, yeah.
1: the, a game comes to mind. I think it was Thanksgiving oh. night where the Steelers, sure. like, won on the yeah. last play on Antonio Brown, like, getting in the end zone barely. Yeah. And the, well,
4: Yeah, there was, there's been so many great moments in the rivalry. There right. was the game Tomlin tripped uh, Jacoby Jones. It was Jacoby Jones. Right. Tripped, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Terrell Suggs broke Roethlisberger's nose. Uh, the, the, it's just a great, great rivalry. I, I do think. That's a good one. It's as much of a it, it belongs any any great rivalry in the last twenty years it, the Steelers Ravens has to be up there.
1: You got a shot at that one someday. I think you could get yeah. someone to do it. I think another. I'd have
4: to get uh, have to get all the principals. I have to get Cole Malu and Ray Lewis and right. Roethlisberger and all them. To, I'm sure they'd Heinz Ward. I'm sure they'd have a lot of uh, great stories to tell. You know, especially if it was fifteen years after they retired.
1: All right, Adam. Thanks for doing this. Super Bowl twenty five. There it is. That's the story.
3: All
1: wow, right, well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, I want to thank Keith Law. And Adam Lazarus for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this podcast and all of our podcasts on our SoundCloud page. It's at sports underscore casters on Twitter. The email is the sportscasters at gmail.com. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Five-star review if you think I've earned it. Uh, They say that that matters. My uh, My friend from Greetings from Allentown says it helps with social promotion, uh, whatever that means, uh, if you can do it. I downloaded an app recently, which I'm going to try to use more and more, uh, that allows you to kind of post clips. It's called Overcast, and you can find the Sportscasters on there. If you're an Apple uh, phone user, I recommend Overcast. Again, it's www.soundcloud.com slash sports-casters for the archive. I think the issue with episodes... Disappearing has been fixed. If you see, if you're looking for an old episode and you can't find it, email me thesportscasters at gmail.com and I can figure out what's going on. Don't forget about my friend Peter Winson, my partner at the Adams Division Podcast. His podcast, greetings from Allentown. It's at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. He has a new episode up about Memphis wrestling right now. Check out my buddy Adrian Dater, Colorado And also, uh, we have been promoting Justin Rosero has a new podcast feed. Uh, He used to be on Place to Be Nation, of course, uh, and he still does the flagship show there. And uh, I will be on that show like I have been in the past. Uh, And he has his own thing now called the North-South Connection brought to you by J.T. Rosero and Chad Campbell. It's the new home for Wrestling Warzone, No Hard Holds barred, the Extreme Three Way Dance, Jeff Wins Wrestling, and more. For information on social media, at JT the Pod Guy on Twitter or North South Connection on Facebook. Uh, you can find Podbean is their host, uh, and of course, all podcatchers. Justin and I were talking about the possibility of doing some kind of uh, collaboration. Uh, Some kind of cross promotion. We might put together a prize pack. Uh, More information on that when it becomes available. Please uh, support and check out Justin if you can. All right. One last thing for today. I've been teasing it for a while. Uh, One thing that's taken up almost all of my quarantine free time has been listening to the new Pearl Jam album Gigaton. Uh, It was released back in November. November or November, in March, the last week of March. I think March 24th maybe was the release date. And uh, I bought it on CD, and I bought it on record, and I have it on my phone. And they put out this really cool video thing on Apple TV, and Paul and I were watching that. Uh, it's a great record. I'm really excited about it. And what I'm going to do now is just go track by track, talk about each of them a little bit, tell you what I think. Uh, the album kicks off with a song called Whoever Said, which is arguably the best song on the album. Uh, it's really, really a strong start. It's one of those songs that kind of builds on itself. Uh, it sort of somewhat reminds me of Lightning Bolt, but a much better Lightning Bolt, but it sort of accomplishes some of the same things that Lightning Bolt did. Uh, I think Ed definitely plays guitar on this one, and he's, he's got a really great part. Uh, some really good lyrics on this one. Swallow My Pencil and Spit Out My Pen is one of my favorites. But uh, I really like Whoever Said. It's really strong. Uh, it's a top you know, a top 15% Pearl Jam song. Um, really, really good. Uh, number two, Super Blood Wolf Moon. It's one of the two singles. Uh, it's grown on me. Great guitar work uh, by... Mike McCready in this one. Uh, It's uh, also Paula's favorite probably so far. Uh, Superblood, Wolf Moon, took her away too soon. Number three, Dance of the Clairvoyance, the first single. Now this is a song that the first night I heard it in the hospital, uh, either after my surgery or waiting for my surgery, I wasn't sure. It was so different. And it kind of reminded me of You Are uh, from Ride Act, where it's kind of this one thing on this album where nothing else is like it. And that stood true. It is like that. There's nothing else like this song on the album. But it's much better than You Are. It's a really good song. Uh, great lyrics. Every time I hear it, I like it more. Um, really a strong song. I think whoever said Super Blood, Wolf, Moon, and Dance of the Clairvoyants are going to get a lot of play uh, at Pearl Jam concerts if they ever, you know, do concerts. Um, number four, Quick Escape. This feels like a song that could have been on 10 or Versus of vitality. It has a real sort of old Pearl Jam feel to it. Again, really great guitar work. Uh, there's a really cool effect on Ed's voice in this one. Uh, interesting lyrics that kind of remind me of A Passage to Bangkok uh, by Rush. Another song I really like. Uh, the first six songs on this album are very, very strong. Um, I love the first six. A ton. Number five is a song called All Right, which feels like this album's pendulum, uh, the song that will open a lot of the shows on the tour. I think it's a classic sort of Pearl Jam opening song. Um, a really good, I like this one a lot. Seven o'clock is track six, and that was my favorite the first time I heard the album, and it's still my favorite today. I love the delivery of the lyrics, uh, some really cool lyrics, too. Uh, I was going to read uh, real quick a really cool lyric, I thought, um, if I can pull it up quickly enough from the song. The, the, there's a lot of words uh, in 7 O'Clock, and I, I feel like the way that Ed sort of weaves them in through the verses is really good. I'll read two parts. This one, I think, really reminds me of what's going on in the world right now. Moved on from my de- despondency and left it in the bed. Do I leave it there still sleeping or maybe kill it better yet? For this is no time for depression or self-indulgent hesitance. This fucked up situation calls for all hands, hands on deck. I love that. And then this other part. Caught the butterfly, broke its wing, then put it on display. Was stripped of all its beauty once it could not fly high away. Oh, still alive like a passerby overdosed on gamma rays. Another God's creation destined to be thrown away. I just think the lyrics on this are really strong. Uh, Eddie Vedder and I certainly disagree politically, uh, but that doesn't mean I can't appreciate an artist at the top of his game, and Eddie really is at the top of his game on 7 o'clock. Like I said, it's been my favorite song on the album. Now, the next four, I think that there's a little bit of a drop-off, but that's only because the first six are so strong. Never Destination is one that's really grown on me uh, through the process. It's uh, sort of a uh, a straight-ahead rocker, um, which I really like. Number eight and number nine, Take the Long Way and Buckle Up. Since this has started, they've always felt like the weakest to me. Buckle Up has sort of been the weakest. It's a Stone Gossard song. Um, I don't hate it. Like If the weakest song on Vitology is Bugs, it's not in that league. You know It's better than, say, God's Dice, which maybe is the worst song on Binaural. Um, it's just, I don't know. Take the long way and buckle up. I need more time on. Comes and Goes is, I think, Just Ed. A really beautiful lyric. Screams Chris Cornell to me. Maybe it's about uh, Chris Cornell. I like it. It feels a little long, though. Uh, sometimes if I'm not in the mood for a slow acoustic song, It can sort of drag out. Retrograde, track 11, one of my favorites. Maybe the best slow song on the album. Uh, I really think it's really powerful and really, really good. Um, It's one I hope gets played quite a bit in concert because I really like to hear it. And it's another one I really like uh, the lyrics on. Uh, Let me find a part I wanted to read. Stars align, they say, when times are better than right now. Feel the retrograde spin us round, round. Seven seas are raising forever, futures fading out. Feel the retrograde all around. I just really like this one. Uh, I think it's the best. It's the best slow song out there um, on the album. This and all right. Um, and then the album ends with River Cross. Now I did something that I've done the last couple times, and I saved Rivercross. I didn't listen to it when I got the leaks. I didn't listen to it right away when I got the CD. I just kind of saved it for a while. It's sort of ending the album at retrograde. No real reason. I just maybe wanted to keep one in my pocket. Uh, But then when Ed played Rivercross on the um, COVID concert or whatever it was, I said, all right, it's time to break this one out. And it's really cool. It was originally played at an Eddie Vedder solo concert. uh, And I think that this version is better than that um sleeping by myself is an example of an eddie vetter solo song that became a pearl jam song i think this is a better example of that where something that maybe was originally intended for eddie vetter solo became eddie vetter pearl jam i don't know for sure that river cross was intended to be solo or if he just played it at a solo show uh before they had a chance to put this album out but um it's a really good way to end the album the pump organ is a really cool sound uh, which I'm sure Boom will do a great job with when they play that at con- in concert. Feels like one of those songs. that and Comes Then Goes and Rivercross both kind of feel like songs that could be played Ed solo in the beginning of a first encore. Uh, but overall, it's a really strong album. Top three for me, whoever said 7 O'Clock, are Definites. And then probably Quick Escape, uh, but if I'm in the mood for a slower one, uh, Retrograde might be Bump, Quick Escape out. But those are probably the top four. Uh, the top seven, whoever said Superblood Blood, Wolf Moon, Dance of the Clairvoyance, Quick Escape, All Right, 7 O'Clock, and Retrograde. It's a really strong top seven that would compete with just about uh, any top seven in any of the 11 Pearl Jam albums, in my opinion. So that's Retrograde, or excuse me, that's Gigaton, Uh, I can't wait to start hearing the songs live. Um, I hope I can get all 12 of them in so that I don't have another straggler on the list like all those yesterdays. Uh, I want to thank again Adam Lazarus for doing this Super Bowl twenty-five breakdown. Thanks to the listeners I reached out to privately uh, asking for a little feedback for you on that. I appreciate that. You know who you are. I hope everyone's staying safe and healthy out there. Hopefully, uh, life is going to start getting back to normal uh, more and more. Uh, I will be back in a much shorter interval uh, than since the last podcast. I'm working hard to book. We got some good books in the book club uh, and some good guests coming up. So stay safe, uh, stay healthy, and uh, I will be back soon.
0: I